I don't know, it seems like... Oh, it chilled you to the bone! It was... it was a chilling tale. <laughs> now you're just cold. You're trying to find ways to make it relevant. Yes, I am. I'm so, freezing. And yes. I'm sorry to, like, make you watch a movie like that and then have to talk about <laughs> it. <laughs> I don't even know how to... I mean... It's hard to... it's hard to really, um... We just watched The Mist, and naturally it kind of panned both of us out. <laughs> I'm feeling super, like, existential. <laughs> yeah, it, uh, it'll do that. It'll also, um, it'll bum you the fuck out. And I think, uh, one of the, one of the best parts about the movie is just its pure, its pure disregard for the the public scope of paranoia and fear and anxiety you know like oh yeah had they just chilled in that car until they starved or started getting attacked by a monster or something you know like they could have just chilled and thought about it for a minute well, they heard a bunch of... They heard a bunch of monsters, but I, they didn't see any. So, I mean, like, let's be real. Sure. That's always been my problem with, um, with like, the ending of Night of the Living Dead or, or The Mist in this case, where it's just like, I get it, you're trying to say something, that you're trying to have a message... But like, let's let's be honest. You know, you don't know, but Night of the Living Dead ends with like one of the only people to survive in the house. He might actually be the only one to survive. Is a large black man, and the minute and this is black and white. This was shot in yeah the sixties or seventies, okay. and you know, this black man comes stumbling out, uh, mumbling to the police, covered in blood. And they think he's a zombie, and they fucking shoot him. And that's, <laughs> and that's the end. Of, and and it's racially charged. It is okay. it, a bunch of hicks come over next to the body, and they're like, "Man, that was a big one." Yeah, that was a big zomboid, you know. So, and then this one is kind of just like "fuck you" all the way. This one's like, T "I'll take your fear. I'll take your paranoia. I'll take your growing dread." For the inevitable, and I will raise you. Mm -hmm. Full house. I don't play poker. No, neither do I. But you understand what I'm saying. Yeah. So, it's it's a challenging <coughs> fucking film, and that's why it's divisive. Um, a lot of people hate this fucking movie. Oh, I didn't. It, it The stimulation that it offers is just what I need. Once in a while. If you indulge in that kind of stuff... The heaviness of constantly? it. Constantly? Constantly. No. I think you would drive no. yourself to utter despair daily. You every are second. allowed 
we mentioned something earlier when we were talking before recording, you know, this type of movie holds a mirror up to humanity and it kind of says, don't do this. You know, it's an Aesop's fable for people trying not to act like shit. And Stephen King does that a lot. He does that a lot in his writing. And like I said, the original novella is a little different. There's a lot of like characters combined and characters expanded and characters altered. Um, what is the difference between a novella and a novel? Length. Ah. Pure yeah. length. It is page count. Gotcha. It's like the difference between a graphic novel and a comic book. Mm. Okay. So you get one part science fiction horror with scientists fucking around with dimensions and technology. Mm. But you film it from the perspective of a everyman. And you put a bunch of anxious, scared people all together in one spot. Go. You know, uh, Stephen King does that a lot. Yeah. In a lot of his stories. I liked, I liked the dialogue. You know, admittedly, I'm not a huge... I, well, not a huge reader to begin with, and let alone have I even touched a Stephen King novel. I've never, I've never read any, okay. any of King's works. But what I really appreciated at the movie is I noticed at least halfway through the dialogue between the characters, some of it was more informal at times of like just utter fear. And then other times when they were discussing and deliberating, I noticed a little heightened, kind of heightened uh, sense of the language and how they were regarding each other and how they explain yeah, you, them you themselves. Yeah, you turned to me and you said people don't talk like this. I I noticed there were distinct scenes where there are moments. It, the, the dialogue, just like was, in every yeah, just like in every movie. It you was know. it was it was good. I thought it was poignant. That I mean that that is all due to Frank Darabont. Okay, you know as I was telling you during the movie, like I thought at times the actors were delivering it as if they were in a play live. Oh, which absolutely. was beautiful. It is a. Uh, it is the dialectic. It is you. You did. You did say that it was, uh, you know, the uh, Socrates philosophical sure, drama. It reminded you know, me the, of the, ancient Greece. Yeah, the um, the story told about one man that represents every man, surrounded by all all men with different emotions and fears, mm-hmm. and they all just uh, clash on each other. Mm-hmm. Frank Darabont is, of course, most popular for his film Notoriously Snubbed uh, because it unfortunately came out the same year as Forrest Gump. I am, of course, talking about Shawshank Redemption, uh, one of the greatest films of all time. Yeah. And I can say that feeling that way. Um, It's not in my top 10. I don't even think it's in my top 20. But when you watch it, you just want to watch it again because it's one of those movies that is just so great. The story is so good. Please tell me you've seen it. I've seen it. Thank God. So, you know, he Frank Darabont also did the much maligned Green Mile, uh, coincidentally, after... Uh, after Shawshank, he actually got Tom Hanks and did a movie with him. And Green Mile is um, cr- often criticized for its kind of, uh, you know, again, it's another Stephen King uh, story turned into a movie. And the movie consists of humanity holding a mirror up to something that they don't want to, which 
in both the case of Shawshank and Green Mile is the prison system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, let's take those two into consideration for a completely different critical eye, and then let's take in the, the version of the mist, which is society. You know, um, classism, stereotypes. Spiritual belief. Religion, yeah. Religion. Religion. Just fear and chaos and... Oh, it's a... I think it's a masterpiece. I think, uh... I think The Mist is one of those... One of those films that just doesn't come around very often. And I think the 80s kind of ruined it for us because they made everything, you know, kind of goofy. The last I could think of that, uh that does something similar to The Mist, and I know this is probably going to roll a couple eyes, but um, Dawn of the Dead by Zack Snyder, his remake of, uh, of course, the uh, the notorious Dawn of the Dead, made mm. in, I think, the 80s, early 80s, uh, Romero's follow-up, and, um, or is it Day of the Dead? I always fucking... There's so many of the deads. Yeah. Return of the Living Dead is fantastic. Anyway, um, you just don't you don't get such a critique of humanity in film so often, and I think it's great. <laughs> That's all I'm trying to say. Yeah, I agree. It's not often uh, a movie is trying to say, "Man, we can be really shitty sometimes," and then force us to watch it tear apart innocent people. <laughs> yeah. Because that's reality. And people don't like reality. People like to go to movies to be uh, removed from reality. So I think the the divisive nature of this film is, of course, the ending. (laughs) And I um, I think a lot of people don't like that they would also pull the trigger on themselves in the same situation. And I think this movie makes people uncomfortable. Ethically. Yeah. Yeah, that movie did a really good job at kind of... Forcing the viewer to really consider what they would do. Yeah, that's it's compelling. Yeah, I mean, I didn't want to, I didn't want to get too carried away by it. It's been around for a while. I definitely recommend it. It's one of those films that if you're feeling something not as heavy as The Road, but not as calm as Invasion of the Body Snatchers, then this is a cool medium between the two. It's kind of sci-fi, kind of thriller, kind of horror. Um, it does uh, kind of drama. You know, it does a lot of good things. Yeah. And I just de- definitely recommend it to people. It's a, it's an obscure piece of cinema that uh, that just doesn't exist anymore. Sure. So I am here with, of, of course, Tenron Otrin. And we are here and, you know... The mood is low, and I think that's befitting mm-hmm. uh, the f- the final stretch here. I didn't even bring it up yet. Um, the left-right game. We are finishing the left-right game today. And I don't know if I have expectations anymore. No. Alice is all alone. Alice has seen herself as a ghost... Oh, and has yeah. al- and has also seen what the road can be, which is so much. <laughs> it has it has 
elements of time, elements of space. I think The Mist is a great film to watch before you come into this because uh, so much of King's series Dark Tower is about hopping between dimensions, Mm -hmm. and I think The Road exists on every dimension in existence. You know, Mm. I think... I think what is happening in the left-right game is cosmic mishap. Mm. Space and time has collapsed in this needle of a haystack we call our planet, and um, it's just kind of gone ignored. And someone stumbled upon it, and someone uh, is drawing attention to it, and I think the only expectation I have left is to find out why. <laughs> and you know what? I don't think that's going to be uh, answered. Yeah, no, no. Of course <laughs> not. If this is a good story, it'll kind of it it'll kind of be alluded to. But I'm trying not to set myself up for disappointment at the very same time. Yeah, I think we'll be content. You always start, and I think it would only be fitting that you start this time. Sure. But, but again, we have to, on every episode like this, we have to do a little quick catch-up. And that's just... This story is about an investigative reporter who joins a caravan, who its only purpose is to drive down roads and take the first left and take the next right, then take the next left and take the next right. That's it. That's it. Let's start the story. I'm just kidding. Um, so much has happened <laughs> with this caravan of people and to, to lay it out quickly, there, there have been tests and the caravan has to pass them or fail them. And we have slowly been dwindling in our numbers because people have either realized that they don't have it cut out to make it in this type of world on the, on this type of plane, or they have simply made a mistake and and have not thought it through well enough. And it's unfortunate, but it's ended in all of their deaths. And to to rattle it off real quick, we started with a caravan of I'm not I don't know how many people I want to say ten or twelve. Yeah, something. And like um, to to go down the list, Ace. He passed through jubilation. Uh, he he made it past the hitchhiker, but he uh, he his car was not well equipped for dealing with jubilation, and he was towed away, mm-hmm. so to say. And um, v- very next was uh, was that Apollo? Oh my goodness! Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was Apollo. Yeah. So Apollo and what's her name? Eve. Yeah. Apollo and Eve go next, and that's just because. Uh, they lose their cool a little bit, and Apollo tries to play the hero. Uh, he dies for Eve, and then Eve dies through her own trepidation. Um, and then Bonnie... And then Bonnie goes nuts because it's revealed that she had talked to the hitchhiker from part one, which everyone was told not to, mm-hmm. and it has driven her insane, like rewritten her brain a little bit. And um, she kills herself. And Clyde, who she traveled with, um, killed himself because he could not live without Bonnie. They were brother and sister, and they were old. Yeah. And then it left us with Blue Jay, Alice, Rob, our Lilith. commandant, and Lilith. And uh, Lilith died trying to overpower Blue Jay, who had a gun and had shot Rob, and Rob has disappeared. Yes. We have not seen Rob since he was shot. 
Um, and Alice has been through a lot to to overcome Blue Jay, and it ended in her kind of getting maimed. Her one arm is in a sling. Um, she also had to blow Blue Jay up with to the kill her. Yeah. C4. Oh, the yeah, C4 yeah, blocks. Yeah. She made the call. She she only tied one block to the bag. Oh, that's right. Okay. And set the thing off to be a controlled demolition. And uh, it blew Blue Jay up, and there was a weird baby monster and well you know a lot of stuff has happened thus far but you know it's also been a uh, a thrilling and magical experience i think i compare it a lot to the odyssey it has had its ups it has had its downs it has been beautiful and it has been terrifying you know it is um it is a nomadic tale of people through places for which they do not belong mm. And I think that's what's kind of poetic about it, because where the fuck do we belong in, you know? So there's there's that to, to deal with, so you can <laughs> let that marinate. But anyway, um, is there, is there anything to, to add? Is there anything to acknowledge? Or do you think this is... Do you, do you have any expectations? I expect Alice to come to terms with things. And we get the the readers get some sort of uh, resolution at least, but at the end, this narrator, this guy who's been getting these letters, emails, whatever, he'll uh, express maybe some sense of doubt, but also, you know, uh, he he'll he'll go after her maybe, and that's how it ends. But hmm. maybe perpetuating that- the. Mm-hmm. Keeping the circle the left going. right game going. Keeping the circle going. Keeping it uh, keeping it running. We we have gone into many conspiracies about what is actually going on here. What if over the last several episodes? But I think the idea if, that it it exists only to draw more people. What if is um, one of my favorite ones? Rob is the narrator guy from the future. That'd be weird. Maybe. I don't know That'd how. That'd be fun. I don't know how old this narrator is, but they're the same age, Allison, this guy, around the same age, because they were... Uh, they went to university together in uh, in bloody mm-hmm. old England, and... Um, hey, man. And you have a point, but it, it would be it would be fun, but I just don't think that that's what's going to happen. I think um, I would not be surprised if Rob just never comes back. I would also not be surprised if there is not an ending. If, um, I look at it as this. She's either going to keep going until it gets her killed, turn around and decide to head back, or it's just going to end. You know, I, I really don't see much conclusiveness to be drawn. Um, it would be nice Let's find out. Yeah, dig in. Let's do it. So this is uh, part five, our part five. This is more likely part like 11. Probably something like that. Of yeah. the left-right game. But um, yeah, we read two parts every part. This is the fifth part. No, so this is part nine. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think one time we read three parts. I don't think so. I think we've read two every mm. every episode. Oh, okay. This is the narrator. Sorry, I've not been in touch, guys. It's been a busy month. However, I'm pleased to announce that as of yesterday night, I finally touched down in Phoenix, Arizona. 
I'm posting this log from my first American hotel room, which offers a gorgeous view of both the state hospital and a local prison. Auspicious times. Drop me a line if you're in the city or if you have any information at all. The left-right game. This will be February 15th, 2017. As the darkness closes in, I find myself dragged deeper and deeper into the depths of my own subconscious until I sink through the back of my mind into an indescribable place. A featureless, directionless, timeless void that exists at the weakest point of my life. I can feel myself drifting away, surrounded, sorry, surrendered to an almost imperceptible tide, carried slowly but inexorably from the world. The rest of the night unfolds in fleeting snapshots. I briefly feel my body lift up from the ground, gravity pulling at my limbs as I'm conveyed through the forest. An unknowable stretch of time later, I feel a distinct burning sensation to my right. In the world I currently inhabit, only an echo of the pain reaches me, but I can tell that it was once substantial. Unable to divine its purpose, I let the sensation fade away before descending once more into the placid darkness. When my eyes finally work themselves open, the sun is beginning to rise. Without an ounce of strength left in my body, all I can do is peer through my eyelashes, taking in the vague scene before me. I'm in the back of the Wrangler, propped up against a soft pillar of luggage. There's somebody kneeling beside me, tugging at my right shoulder. When I address them, I discover that my voice has withered to a spectral whisper, so frail that it hardly exists at all. Rob! Hearing my voice, the figure shuffles round and kneels before me, staring into my eyes as they slowly regain their focus. You just lay back, Miss Sharman. I just finished patching you up, but I... Gotta make sure it's good work. What? What happened to you? Denise had me at gunpoint, had to act like I was all but dead. When she ran into the forest, I got free, took the med kit into the trees, fixed myself up a little. I was coming to help when I heard this awful noise, went to check it out, and that's when I found you. Is the engine running? Wanted to warm the place up for you. You were in shock. Since the battery don't run down anymore, I thought... No, I mean, how... The key, you... It got... You think I'd risk getting out this far with only one copy of my car key? Rob seems almost insulted. Thinking back to everything I've learned about him over the course of this trip, I can see why he might be. Even in my weakened state, I can't help but laugh though it admittedly comes out as stilted wheezing, diffusing quietly into the air. (sighs) No, that's... (laughs) No, that's... That's actually very you. I think Blue Jay would have appreciated that information last night. Yeah, well, she didn't ask. I'm glad you made it, Rob. Glad you made it, too. They build them tough down in London. I rest my head back against the luggage. I'm from Bristol. Of course, yeah, of course, that's... Sorry. Rob tries to recover his smile, but it slips quickly from his grasp. In its absence, his features cringe into sudden, uncontrollable sadness. 
Sharma, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so sorry. Rob Guthard's weathered face bursts into a heaving mess of tears. He repeats those two words as he lumbers towards me, throwing his arms around my waist and resting his head on my left shoulder. My hand feels like lead as I raise it up and brush it against his hair, holding him against me. As the man continues to sob, I let my head roll slowly to the right, observing the damage to my arm. Last night, lost in the muddled or muddled throes of shock, the harm had been unquantifiable. The details drowned out by the encompassing haze of severe blood loss and a blaring primal alarm, which had forced me to move without questioning why. Now that I'm on the other side, bathed in the quiet warmth of the Wrangler, I'm able to fully assess the extent of my injury. Everything below my right elbow is gone. It feels almost like a dream. My upper arm is practically unblemished, save for a few dark bruises from last night's fall, yet it descends an impossibly short distance before ending in a blunt, surreal stump. The wound itself is hidden from view, swaddled in fresh white bandages. I can't seem to figure out how I should feel, and consequently, I don't seem to feel anything. It's okay, Rob. It's okay. I never... I never meant for any of this I know. To... I know. Rob pulls back his eyes, still watering. I'll take you home, okay? I'll find somewhere to turn around and we'll get you home. I can tell Rob's offer is genuine, and to be honest, I'm a little surprised. I still remember our verbal agreement forged at the mouth of the tunnel, that he would not be turning his car around until he reached the road's end. I never expected he'd be the one to renege on the deal. I'm aware this could be, the be my best chance to leave it all behind, to flee from the horrors of the road before they take even more of me. I know the way back. I know that it leads to safety, to family, to blessed normality. However, as an insidious voice in the back of my mind quietly notes, it doesn't lead to answers. I'm still game if you are. Rob sends me a heartbroken smile, which I would return if I had the strength. In that moment, a somber understanding develops between us, an understanding that after everything we've seen, everything that's happened, we're both still choosing the secrets of the road. The decision reveals something about us, exposing a driving force behind our actions that negates our concern for survival and overshadows the imagined protests of our loved ones. It's a decision only two broken people would make. Rob spends the morning packing up the Wrangler, giving me time to rest. The fact that he's walking around at, at all is remarkable, let alone conducting his usual routine at his usual pace. Sorry, as I begin to feel life crawl slowly back into my veins, I wonder whether the strange force that had sustained us both, as well as the Wrangler's fuel tank, could also have a mild restorative effect. The notion should bring me comfort. Instead, it makes me feel like a lobster in a tank. A few hours later, Rob carries me out of the car, letting me rest in the doorframe. In front of me lies three mounds of dirt, raised slightly from the surrounding earth. Two are headed by crosses, formed from knotted sticks bound tightly together. The grave on the far left lies bare, bereft of any religious affiliation. Is that... Blue Jays? Without the cross? Didn't think she'd want one. She wouldn't have done that for you, you know. Good thing I ain't her, then. I buried what I can, but that was 
Some state she was in. Did the child kill her? Rob goes to throw a foldable spade into the back of his car. For a brief moment, I considered letting this statement go unanswered. No. It didn't. I did. Rob immediately marches back round, his brow furrowed in confusion. I hid a C4 charge in my satchel. When she took the bag, I, well, I gestured to the bare grave. Rob looks as if he's seeing me for the first time. Where did you? From your son's car. My watch is my quiet assertion. Strikes Rob's ears as its meaning burrows through his consciousness, its implications contorting his features into a look of shame and damning revelation. I can tell from his reaction that I've got it right. We haven't had a chance to speak since I learned his son's name. That piece of information formed the crucial thread, stringing together the strange and seemingly incongruent discoveries I'd encountered on the road. Earlier in the week, I may have been worried to confront him with this information, but things are different now. We've come too far, we've been through too much, and if he's truly ferrying me somewhere with malicious intent, I'm powerless to stop him anyway. I raise a weak hand towards him, a quiet request for assistance. I think it's time we had a good uh, second, second interview. Following a tense and guilty silence, Rob simply, simply nods and helps me into the passenger seat. It wasn't military, it was commercial. The Wrangler continues to crawl through the forest. I've stayed quiet for almost half an hour, letting Rob formulate a response in his own words, and in his own time. Commercial? Yeah. Explosive charges for controlled demolition. Bobby was in the business, had his own firm. You must have been proud. Yeah. Yeah, he built that place up from nothing. Tore in his office was one of the best days of my life. So, how did he end up out here? Rob grows quiet, reluctantly accepting that he'll have to start from the beginning. Bobby was a smart kid, smarter than I ever was. He could have run the farm at 15, but country life didn't take. Instead, he moved away to Phoenix, picked up a college degree, got himself a steady career. A steady career? That's pretty rebellious for a Guthard. Ha! Well, we were pretty different people, didn't always get along. I was still a courier in those days, always jetting off somewhere new. Of course, I went to Japan, stayed there a while, then... Okugara. That's right. Changed everything. Came home after five years with a new hobby. Bobby didn't care for the stories, but his ma died sudden while I was away. We both wanted to start over, be in each other's lives more, so... He came with me to the Pacific Northwest, tracking down Sasquatch. Creature didn't show, but Bobby had a good time camping, so he kept joining me. Before long, he was doing this research himself, organizing trips, picking up rumors of strange stuff all across the country. Sounds like a nice time for you both. It was. So... Was it Bobby who discovered the left-right game? He called me up one day, out of the blue. This was about three years ago. Said he'd found a set of rules. Said we should try it out. To be honest, I thought our tripping days were over. I was back in Alabama, and he was... 
starting up a family of his own, but suddenly he's telling me to meet him in Phoenix, so of course I went along. And this time, you both realized it was real. Bobby knew as soon as we reached the tunnel, he passed that way every day, knew it wasn't supposed to be there, but it... It was there. He, he said that was the most amazing thing he ever saw. We charted it over the next year, whenever we could get the time together, but we moved slow, mapped the place out, turned back on the regular. It took us a while before we got the courage to stay on the road overnight. Both of us were terrified the tunnel would disappear or something. I can tell Rob is re replaying the events in his head. The reminiscence almost makes him smile. Bobby's wife was a real doll. Used to work in his office. Kindest girl I ever met. Funny, too. There was a decade between them, but you could tell they were good for each other. He shared everything with her, including the road. In fact, once Bobby got a little more secure with the rules, they started to map it together. Exploring their own little world. After a brief pause, Rob's expression sinks slightly. The reminiscence is growing darker. A few months go by, I'm hearing from Bobby a little less, but I expected that. Then one evening, I get a call from the hospital telling me my boy had walked into some ER in Phoenix. Was he okay? No. He was in a bad way, leg all busted up, delirious, asking for Marjorie. They found her bag in the car, but she was nowhere to be found. Bobby lost her on the road. Yeah, that's right. On our second night here, after we lost Ace, you told me the road had never hurt anyone before. Well, that wasn't a lie, at least. It wasn't the road that got him. What do you mean? They made it to the forest. None of us had got that far before, but this time they pushed a little further than usual. Do you know why? They were gonna have a kid. Marjorie was almost due, wasn't traveling so well. I think they knew they wouldn't be hitting the road for a while. It was like a... Like a last hurrah, I guess. But only Bobby came back. They explored the woods till nightfall, and Bobby said they had to turn back, Marjorie didn't want to. He never told me why, never told me what happened. By the end of that trip, Marjorie was still out there and he was in a hospital bed. Rob takes a moment to collect himself to put the facts in order. The trees are starting to grow thin, sunlight bursting through the widening gaps in the canopy. Looks like we're nearing the forest's end. Bobby took a month or so to recover. Boy was desperate to get his wife back, and of course he'd become a suspect in her disappearance. Needless to say, the first thing he did was head onto the road to find Marjorie. But he didn't. No. No. He found her. Just a... a little sooner than he thought. I take a moment to process Rob's implication. Suddenly I feel a stone drop in my stomach. She was on the 34th turn. Rob nods solemnly. 
Wasn't the woman he knew, of course. Stood there all day, just mumbling about the road. Didn't even recognize him. I remember he called me up right after he first saw her there, his heart breaking. He tried almost every day from then on, always stopping at that turn. He'd yell. He'd plead. He'd bring pictures and gifts, but she just never responded. Don't know if it was really her, but... Whatever was on that corner, it belonged to the road. Bobby lost something of himself on that corner after a while. His fascination with the game turned sour. Turned to hate. He thought the road was something evil. That it had no place linking into our world. I was checking up on him at that point every few days or so. One weekend he said he was doing better. Even said he'd been into work. I thought maybe things were turning around, but... Then he went quiet. Didn't pick up his phone for three days. I had my place in Phoenix by that point, and a spare key to his house, and that's where I found the note, telling me he'd gone back through. One last bid to find his wife. And if he couldn't bring her back, well... He was going to destroy the tunnel. Cut the road off from the world. I played the game in Phoenix, Chicago, a few different places, but that one tunnel is what links you to the road. I looked around his garage, found the box for a phone, a lot of electronics all over the place, pretty clear what he'd done. So I jump in my car. We pass out of the forest onto a long, narrow road. In the distance, I can see our route winding up a towering wall of sandstone, disappearing into a set of rolling mountains. He passed me on his way back, just before I hit jubilation, thundering down the road at full speed, driving like crazy. That's when I knew he hadn't found her, that he was going to take out the tunnel and the game once and for all. But he never got that far. I tried to call him. Called his cell, tried the radio frequency. There was a number on the SIM card documentation that he had. God help me, I even messaged him on that one. In the end, it was just me and him racing back to Phoenix. He was faster than me, but I was driving better. And after a few bad corners, I caught up. You ran him off the road. Rob stares out of the faraway ridges, his hands grasping the steering wheel. Cell service don't work through the tunnel. He knew that. He was either going to blow it up on this side or while he was in there. So you were trying to save him or save yourself? Neither. I was trying to save the road. Say what you want about this place, Miss Sharma, but it's a doorway out of everything we've ever known. It's the road out of... out of reality. It may be the most significant frontier we ever cross, and that's... part of me knew that was too important for one man to take away. For the second time today, Rob battles back tears. And for the second time, he fails. They roll silently down his cheek as he continues on. 
He was more injured than I thought. He'd hurt himself bad before he reached me. That's why he was headed to the tunnel so quick. He wanted to destroy it while he still could. The road had taken almost everything from him. And then I took the rest. I denied him his hope, took away his chance to leave the world on his own terms. In the end, he didn't even seem angry. He just asked after Marjorie. Asked me why she did it, why she left. I laid him to rest there, visited the place often, but I never had a good answer for him. And that's when I started prepping the next run. So you posted his logs online and pretended to discover them? Thought people would ask less questions that way. And where did we all fit into this? Why did you bring us here with you? I guess... I thought it was time the world knew. Didn't want all this to end up an old man's secret. Honest to God, if I knew the road was gonna... I swear I never would have brought you here. Rob's features tighten, all his shame and guilt rising to the fore. I can't say it isn't des deserved. Despite despite his intentions, despite his uh, penance, the man had blinded himself to clear dangers, hurt those closest to him, and, on a road where secrets had killed so many, he'd kept the most significant one of all. Well, perhaps not the most significant. You didn't bring us here, Rob. Rob turns to be confused. I met someone in the forest last night, a figure just like the one you saw in Japan. It looked like static you see on the TV screen. I thought it was you, Rob. I think I saw you, and I think that all those years ago... In my current state, the mechanics of the event and their stunning implications lie beyond my explanatory capacity. In the end, I just raise my lost right arm and wait for Rob to make the connection. A moment later, the car screeches to a halt. Rob stares ahead, his knuckles white against the steering wheel. I'm aware that beneath his stone-set features, every square inch of gray matter is fighting to process the fresh revelation. If it's true that, in those quiet woods, I somehow reached across the decades to a young Rob Guthard, then it changes everything. The twisting narratives that led us to this point, Rob's burgeoning obsession, his son's tragic fate, they all took root in that single moment. More than a decade prior to my own birth, I had placed us on the path which would lead me to his door. As chaotic as the road often seems, that moment in the forest hints at something deeper, something intentional. Rob steps out of the car for a while, before wordlessly climbing back in and firing up the Wrangler. From that point on, we continue as two silent passengers lost in thought, disappearing into the sandstone mountains. We travel across the thin mountain road for the next two hours, a wall of crooked rock hemming us in. When we pass onto the other side and the outcrop falls away, the landscape below us has changed completely, and retreated to a strange and breathtaking sight. The Wrangler is traversing the cliffs above a vast, flat desert, a tundra of vibrant orange stretching as far as the eye can see. I can just make out the road cutting a meandering path through the sand be far below us. At the center of his otherwise featureless expanse, 
a collection of monolithic structures towering columns of glass and metal rise from the ground, connected by a web of long perpendicular streets. There's a city. There's a city on the road. Rob keeps his eyes forward. Despite the epic majesty of the cityscape below us, I can tell that his mind is elsewhere, that he's still digesting the contents of our interview. In the end, I think it is best to leave him alone with his thoughts. We stay on the mountain for another 20 minutes before finally winding down to the desert floor. The space ahead of us is two-tone, the sharp saffron of the desert and the deep blue sky, separated by a thin, even horizon. The only objects that cross this perfect boundary are the hulking gray towers of the city, rising from the sand and bursting through into the heavens. I don't think it's a good idea that Rob is now secluding himself. I think him being lost is in his own thoughts. He's already thinking of ways to like go back in time and kill her. <laughs> you know, you know, like he's he's doing something. If it's her fault that he's there and if it's her fault that his kid died because he's there, you know, there's just there's too many implications. And at that point, anything is possible. And at that point, Rob is the type of person to totally lose his shit, I think. I don't think it's a good thing that he's quiet. And I have no idea what this fucking city has in store. I disagree. Okay. I think Rob is actually going to process this information. And I think he'll... Maybe there'll be a a moment where he has to make a decision... And it ends up he saves her. Hmm. I think he processes through what he's learning. Interesting. I think he's broken. Gotcha. <laughs> I think that broke him a little. You know, friends are meant to disagree. Otherwise, it's not... It's... I don't think he, much like us reading the last part, had put time travel as a concept of the road. Mm. Yeah. I, th- I don't know. I think he's he respects logic... And he takes responsibility, as we've been seeing. And he cares about Alice as a person. He does. So he's it's really, easy for you to make that he's, assumption. He's developed. He's, he's developed at least some sort of feelings for her. Mm-hmm. So I mean, I don't think he would say, "Well, if time travel is well, time travel, and really what we want to look at is causality." And I don't think he would pin it all on Alice, and he would come to a conclusion that this is a cycle, circular. So. It, the initial cause cannot be definitely proven. It can just be, uh, you know, you can you can guess what the initial cause was. And Alice is taking, I think, a little bit uh, too much. She's she's assuming too hard that she was the initial cause, and she, I don't think, acknowledges that it could be like what I just said, a cycle. Oh, chicken and the egg, absolutely. Sure. She yeah. wouldn't be there without him telling her that story in the first place. You know, it's. It's it's hard where to draw the line, but I still feel like at the end of the day, what he what she just said to him, what he just realized is not what he wanted to hear in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. Okay. Do you think they slammed the brakes because of what she said or this city? I th- well, I think... I think what she said introduced a new element... Into the road. Into the road. Into into him. Into his idea of what the road is capable of doing. Because up until this point, it's just been, like he said, 
a place beyond reality. He didn't know it's a place beyond time itself. Yeah. Time is a human concept, so what does that say about the road? What? <laughs> you know, like, that probably blew his fucking mind. And I think if, if he's only... You know what? You have a point. He respects the road more than he respects himself. He respects the road more than he respected his son, in the very least. So, you know, maybe he holds more regard for it than her. But I think something is, something's going to get between them because what drives a good story other than conflict? We'll see. We'll see. We snake along the desert road, the city looming even larger as we make our tentative approach toward the border. There's an eerie contrast to the threshold as we cross it. The coup, the cupreous, coup, oh my gosh. I don't even know that word. Cuprius? Go for it. Cuprius, wow. It must be a wrong spelling or something. Spelled C-U-P-R-E-O-U-S. Let's give that a right click. That is not a word. No way. <laughs> Capricious? Capricious? Uh, no. I, don't, I don't think that describes a glow, no. but let's go for it. The, this, the glow. this glow of the sand switches to the gray. The scorching heat instantly cools. And perhaps most notably, what little sound there was is negated entirely. As we delve down an empty, perfectly maintained thoroughway, throughway, I realize that I can't hear anything at all except for the Wrangler's steady rumblings. Steady rumblings. It's quiet. It's quiet. That's fine by me. Who do you think built this place? I don't know. Maybe whatever brought us here. Dude, this is Hades Palace. Could be that no one built it. Maybe it just is. I wonder if he's right. It's hard to think such a place would exist for any practical purpose. The city looks off somehow, as if it were built for con from conjecture by an architect who had only heard of cities through poorly translated rumor. All the broad features are present, skyscrapers, lampposts, window cleaning platforms, but nothing deeper. It's an empty shell, an ornament in the middle of the desert. As we turn down the next few roads, I stare up at the monolithic structures, each one standing, at least a hundred stories tall. My eyes track back down the countless strata of dark windows as I contemplate what it might be like to live in such a place. When I reach the ground floor, I'm presented with my answer. There's a young man standing at the ground floor window, his hand resting against the glass. He's wearing a dark gray suit and a look of almost mesmeric shock. His mouth opens his hands shaking, his unblinking eyes staring past us as the Wrangler rolls by. My eyes quickly track back up the skyscraper's glass facade, scrutinizing each row of windows in turn. I'd naively hoped the buildings would be empty, that this place would be nothing more than a colossal ghost town. But now that I know otherwise, each pane of glass feels like a dark pool of water, still on the surface, but with a sinister potential lurking within its depths. A few seconds later, more of them arrive. There aren't many at first, just a few scattered figures stepping up to their windows. 
pressing themselves against to the glass. However, like a light sprinkling of rain that erupts into a downpour, the frequency of their arrival quickly doubles, then triples, until not a single space lies unoccupied. The Wrangler shrinks, subject to the scrutiny of countless individuals on every floor in every window, all of them clad in the same monochromatic form aware and staring down at us like the emissaries of a grand tribunal. As the Wrangler passes by, they continue to stare straight ahead, though it's clear they're aware of our presence. Rob? Rob, there's... I see him. Rob puts his foot down, shedding the weight of a thousand pairs of eyes as he leaves the building behind. As the final column of windows slips by us, I glance back, hoping to see them return to the depths of the building. Instead, in those last few moments, I witness their collective demeanor fracture into a desperate frenzy. Their mouths opening in a silent scream as they slam their fists against the glass. Turning back around, I stare into the buildings that currently flank our vehicle. The figures have already arrived at their windows and their calm is already fading. Rob, we need to go faster. I'm on it. The Wrangler growls with a renewed ferocity as Rob plants his foot onto the gas. We lurch towards the next corner, accelerating down the road as Rob scans for any hidden turns. I achingly shift into my seat, keeping an eye on the scene developing in our wake. Shards of broken window begin to rain onto the asphalt. Watching the shattered pieces tumble through the air, it's apparent that the quiet in this city isn't simply due to a lack of activity. The torrent of splintered glass is completely silent, even as it crashes against the imper impervious ground. Nothing in this city makes a noise. Nothing except us. The thunderous engine of the Wrangler has never s sounded so loud. Looking up, I witness hundreds of hands gripping the shattered window frames, unable to turn myself away as thousands of polished black shoes step over the threshold. The figures stream out from every floor, forming an incomprehensible deluge of humanity. The first wave strikes the ground, with more and more landing against them a heap of tangled figures struggling to separate themselves. Much like the residents of Jubilation and everyone else we've encountered on the road, they appear impervious to the fatal harm such an act should impart. Those that landed on their feet hardly even stop, turning toward us and sprinting after the Wrangler. It doesn't take long for the rest of the writhing mass to resolve itself. Its constituent individuals joining the frantic stampede their chaotic charge and desperate screams bereft of any perceivable sound. Even in the midst of the frenzied pursuit, as a foreboding shower of glass falls from every building we pass, the world outside remains silent. The chaos, made even more incomprehensible, framed against the ungodly stillness in which it takes place. Rob screeches around the corner, drifting into a long and open street. The roadway ahead is flanked by skyscrapers disappearing to a, a narrow vanishing point. As we race down the next stretch of road towards a large intersection, the ever-growing mob bursts onto the street behind us, taking the corner with supreme coordination and continuing tirelessly in our direction. A split second later, I'm struck by an abrupt and pervasive idea. It feels unlike any thought I've ever had before, less of a notion, and more a prescient hybrid of intuition and deja vu. 
as if the course of action we must take is obvious to me despite my not knowing why. I force my voice above a grating whisper. Rob, we need to drop something behind us, something loud. What are you thinking? I, uh, you just have to trust me, okay? We still have most of the plastic explosive, could you? Nah. If you took out the blasting cap, I ain't got time to make a new one. Rob glances into the rear view, then back to the road. I can almost hear the gears turning in his head. But that's the only explosive on board. Think you can drive? I guess we can find out. The car thunders across the tarmac as I clumsily grasp the wheel, shifting myself over and working my foot onto the accelerator. Rob lifts himself away and climbs past me onto the, into the back of the Wrangler. In my weak state, every shuddering motion makes my bones rattle. With each subsequent gear shift, I'm forced to take my remaining hand off the wheel and reach across to the stick. The effort is precarious and awkward. My aching limbs puppeteered by the willpower and adrenaline, every passing second a battle to maintain control. The windows up ahead are starting to fracture. The noise of the Wrangler is carrying me, and the entire city is starting to preempt our arrival. Behind me, I can hear the ripping of duct tape, the tearing of fabric, and the clattering of falling luggage. I'm not sure what's taking place behind me, I just have to trust that Rob has a plan. I hear the back door swing open just before we reach the intersection, a metallic scraping against the Wrangler's floor, and a pained grunt from Rob as he throws something onto the road behind us. Reaching the crossroads, I slide my hand along the wheel and twist it sharply to the right. As the car lurches round and onto the next road, I feel my heart sink dramatically. We've been overtaken. The windows ahead of us are shattered. The front doors lay broken on the street, and the building's desperate inhabitants are rushing towards us, blocking off our only means of escape. I slam my foot onto the brake and the Wrangler shudders to a halt. The engine, the engine stalling and cutting out. The streets are now spilling over, an overwhelming swarm converging on our position from four directions. I look back to Rob and he meets my gaze, his eyes brimming with dismayed finality. An explosion shudders through the air behind us. I look out the back window to see a shattered jerry can, one of Rob's now superfluous fuel reserves. Wow. Its dark green shell violently compromised its contents spilled out across the road and cast a light. Now that the engine isn't running, the echo of the blast and the roar of the primal, balletic flame fills the afternoon air. The trajectory of the maddened crowd changes instantaneously. The silent wrangler has fallen from their collective attention as they refocus onto the smoldering flames. Those up ahead continue to rush past us, streaming around the Wrangler as they scramble to the spilled pool of gasoline, digging their hands into the blaze and grasping hopelessly at the fire. Delicately careful not to make a single shred of noise, I climb out of the driver's seat, joining Rob in the back of the Wrangler. He addresses me in a confused whisper. Why don't they care about us? What are they doing? It's the sound. They want it for themselves. I don't know how I'm so sure, but I know that it's the case. The jerry can creaks and screams as the city dwellers tear it into smaller and smaller pieces. 
frantically examining every jagged scrap. With each passing second as the fire dies down, the crowd grows increasingly distressed, as if a, a precious commodity is slipping through their fingers. They don't understand it. They'll pull it apart, trying to figure it out. They'll never get any closer. And then it'll be quiet again. Where are you getting this from? I don't know. I, I, I just, uh, just a feeling. Well, pretty sure they would have pulled us apart, too. I'd say we're pretty lucky. <laughs> yeah, pretty lucky. As the last of the gasoline is eaten up and the fire dies away, the city dwellers remain in the streets, devoid of their momentary sense of purpose, their prize vanishing into the ether. The crowd's desperation fades into a hushed despondency. I watch them as they pass by, countless faces racked with sorrow, their aimless shuffling forming a lonesome sea, a grayscale ocean that spans the desolate city. The Wrangler is now adrift in the center of that ocean. It's clear that any attempt to start the engine would bring the entire city down on us, reigniting their futile hope, causing them to tear through the car and anything inside it. For the foreseeable future, we're completely stranded. Don't worry about it, okay? I don't think they're going to leave, Rob. They'll leave. Okay. And what then? They'll still be everywhere. Hey, we're a smart pair. We'll think of something. In the eerie, pervasive calm that surrounds us, I sit myself down next to Rob and lean against the wall, with nothing else to do but wait for our situation to change. After watching the figures outside for over an hour, the only thing that's different is a strange, needling sensation that feels like it's emanating from now, absent forearm. My, uh... My arm hurts. How's that possible? Don't worry, that's, uh... It's called Phantom Limb. You got some sensation, right? Like, you, st you still got something there. A lot of people get that after amputations. Here. Rob reaches into his medical kit and retracts a blue jar of tablets. Twisting off the cap, he shakes two pills free. You're gonna need these for the pain. I stare at the tablets for a moment before collecting them from his open palm. He passes me his canteen and I swallow them in two weak gulps. You have a lot of experience with amputations? More than you'd think. My brow furrows. Though I had meant my remark as a passing jibe, Rob's response rings with a strange sincerity. It takes me a moment to realize why that is. I forgot that you were drafted. You never talked about it. Been thinking about it a lot, though. Bunch of strangers brought together under false pretenses, told that we were serving a grand purpose by some old liar. Guess it's interesting how time repeats itself. Now that I think about it, he drove a jeep, too. Rob, I told you, you didn't bring us here. I don't change nothing. Don't change what I did to you, to Bobby, to any of them. Maybe you were there in the forest, but I was the one who started this, the one who kept asking what was at the end of the road. What do you think is at the end, Rob? Starting to think that ain't for me to know. 
I've been moving from place to place so long, seen everyone else settle down. Far as I can see, the end of the road is just wherever you decide to stop. I rest my head on Rob's shoulder. He gently places his arm around me. It isn't long before medication starts to take effect, quietly overtaking my already weakened constitution. The pain subsides, dulled along with the rest of my senses. The stun is still, still streaming through the windshield as my eyes begin to drift shut. I watch the figures pass the window, my eyelids getting weaker. I don't want this to be the end, Rob. I know, Miss Sharma. I know. The last thing I see before I fall into a dreamless, artificial sleep is Rob Guthard's hand reaching for the rifle. It's like the mist. Jesus, F. <laughs> Read. <laughs> when my eyes work themselves open, the sun is beginning to set. I feel like in an earlier episode of this little miniseries, did I try doing a David Attenborough impression? Yeah. <laughs> I knew it. First or second episode. <laughs> yeah. I've been moved. As my vision adjusts, it becomes clear that I'm still in the Wrangler. Watch as a little, little monkey struggles. <laughs> He's going to die. <laughs> <laughs> if he does not figure out how to use that stick... The father and mother leave the child. There's no hope for him. Life is meaningless. <laughs> <laughs> as the snakes descend upon their prey... A quiet moment. <laughs> a quiet moment of horror and utter despair. He's but going not to worry. <laughs> he dies. <laughs> and it is painful. <laughs> oh. Alright, back to Alice now. I've been moved. As my visions adjust, it becomes clear that I'm still in the Wrangler, my head resting against a pile of fresh clothes, a soft travel blanket laid across me. I glance around to find that Rob's nowhere to be seen. Momentarily forgetting the situation outside the car, I attempt to call out for him. The syllable catches in my throat as a shambling figure passes by the window, wringing its hands in despair and casting a long shadow through the car. With a renewed sense of caution, I slide the blanket to one side and slowly make my way up to the front. The cabin is similarly empty, except for a single scrap of paper torn from a notebook. It lies on the driver's seat, a small object hidden within the fold. When I open it, I find my headphones and five neatly written words. Channel one to all cars. My hand starts to shake as I rest the note on the dashboard. Slowly climbing through and placing myself gently into the driver's seat, my heart in my throat, I insert the headphones into the jack of the CB radio. Take a single quivering breath in and press the button. Rob? I'm, uh... I'm sorry, Miss Sharma. Rob, where are you? Down the road a little. Got myself to one of the rooftops. I know I always hated cities, but... Once you're above it, the view's really something. Come back, Rob. Come back. Please... I wish I could. I do. 
But we both know those things ain't leaving. And you need the car to get wherever you gotta go, so... Best I can do is make some ruckus. Draw them out of your way. I rest my head against the steering wheel, bracing myself against the weight of his words. I can't do this without you. I don't think that's true, Miss Sharma. I think whatever's on this road, it wants you to make it all the way. All I was meant to do was bring you this far. Now, you don't have to listen to it. You can turn around and head home. But either way, only one of us is driving out of here. So I guess the only option left is... Which way do you want to go? Well, are you ahead of me or behind me? I can be anywhere. It's your choice, Miss Sharma. In the wake of Rob's words, in the shadow of the decision, I'm cast into silence. Not because the choice is hard, but because I'm ashamed that it's so easy. It was made from the moment I first stepped into the Wrangler, and renewed it in every perplexing moment since. The need to know, to comprehend, to uncover the truth has been with me all my life, but I never knew its roots ran so deep that it would endure so ardently when everything else, everyone else, had been stripped away. I stare into the rearview mirror, seeing myself for the very first time, and I have to admit I'm scared. Stay where you are, Rob. <laughs> okay, Miss Sharma. You ready? Yeah, I'm ready. All right, then. Suppose it's about time this thing did some good. The shot explodes through the radio before a faint, booming echo reaches me on the quiet city air. Its effect on the city dwellers is immediate. Their collective melancholy shatters in an instant, replaced by a renewed fixation. Before I knew it, the disparate crowd unites once more into a stampeding horde, rushing past the windows of the Wrangler and back down the road towards the source of the noise. They on their way? As the last of the city dwellers disappear behind me, I run my hand across the steering wheel and down to the ignition. Yeah. Yeah, they're on their way. Okay, then. What are you waiting for? With a fateful twist of the key, the Wrangler roars back to life. The wheels kick against the asphalt, transporting me through the streets of the city. As I barrel away from the intersection, I see a small contingent of pursuers rushing around the corner behind me. Rob fires the rifle again, maintaining the attention of the majority. The stragglers fall away in my rearview mirror, losing ground against the Wrangler. I take the first left, and then the next possible right, then another left. A few minutes later, I eventually find myself on the last stretch of road, leading me back into the vast and empty desert. So you're gonna make it? Yeah. I'm gonna make it. Good. That's good, Miss Sharma. If, uh... If you find Marjorie, if you get a chance to let me know well it's more than I deserve but of course of course I will I appreciate that okay they're gonna be here soon so I'm gonna go radio silent for a while if I call 
you'll know I've made it out. If I don't call, you just assume I made it out, okay? Please tell me you're going to be alright, Rob. It's been a real honor driving with you, Miss Sharma. The sound of a final shot reverberates through the radio, its echo drowned out by the roaring engine of the Wrangler. The world shifts around me as I burst out of the city and back onto the desert road. You think he... Killed himself? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. The way ahead is laden with immense possibility, yet as I disappear into the vastness of the desert, I can only think of what I've left behind. Rob J. Guthard had his flaws. Marked by loss, driven by obsession, his good intentions often paving the way to tragedy and heartbreak. As the tears begin to roll down my cheeks, I decide to remember him differently. As a valued friend, a good man, and above all else, a great story. No matter how you tell it. I knew it. Yeah. Um... I, uh, I didn't know that was going to happen. I kind of think it's poetic that we watch the mist when the opposite happens. The guy with the gun runs out as a diversion to kind of get all the monsters to follow him instead of, you know, a last ditch resort. Yeah. So, um, when he said that his, uh, time in the army was creeping back up on him, that means his, uh... His PTSD of being swallowed by humanity was most likely also creeping up on him. Mm. So taking the shot on himself was probably the easiest decision he has had to make this entire trip on the road. I would assume. Mm -hmm. After he saw how they took apart a fire in a jerry can... You can imagine what they would do to his body if they found him. If he refused, If he refused to stop making noise... Part of me would like to think that if he just went quiet after making all that noise, that, like, if no one found him and he just went quiet again, they'd probably leave him alone. But what then? Yeah. Does he walk on the road for the rest of the journey? I, I, don't, I just don't think it's probable. I don't think it's possible. But it's, um, it's fun to think about. Yeah. But I do think, um, I do think he offed himself. I knew Rob was going to come through and save me. Yeah, you held out hope. I thought he'd be incensed, but I I didn't uh, I didn't really channel. Uh, I guess I d- I didn't really think about how he. I acknowledged how he felt about her, but well, I don't think it. I don't know what else there is for the story except for that ominous, omniscient voice. I don't even know if we'll see the voice again, man. We'll see. So that's where you're, that's where you go now. Is you think the voice is gonna pop back up? Maybe. Well, uh, I'm really having trouble thinking. I think where... it's just gonna be. And here I am, and I'm on the road, and it has not ended. <sighs> Cut to black. I don't know, dude. Because I'm having a real tough time thinking about how she has had the opportunity to one write all of this, and two write it with such a. 
Um, it's a good point. Storytelling. Uh, we have not yet answered the question of how the fuck has this ended up back at yeah, <laughs> back so at I'm thinking ro- roommate somehow university. Somehow she gets to a point where she is allowed to write about this or something. She has to. I don't agree, know. Maybe she has to agree to something. Maybe she just gets a quick internet signal and uploads it to the cloud. <laughs> so you think she was writing this along the way? Yeah, she absolutely was. Are you implying that there's going to be a time travel element and that's the only way no, that it's uploaded? I'm thinking she wrote all of this after the whole trip concluded. You think she and got she's, back? She's writing from memory. I don't think she got back. Okay. That's well, where I'm that's where I'm, I'm at. I'm not saying she got back, but I'm saying she, she got gets, somewhere. She gets somewhere. She got somewhere. And she gets an opportunity. She went in she went in in Arizona and popped out in Alaska, but <laughs> yeah. she went somewhere. Yeah. We'll see. This is the final part of the left-right game. Well, then, here we are, aren't we? I have to be honest. When I posted the first pages of these logs from my bedroom in North London, I didn't think it would go very far. After all, why would it? I wasn't a regular contributor to the site, nor a seasoned veteran of the paranormal. I was just a man who missed his friend, seeking a few words of wisdom from an online message board, open to the idea that I wouldn't, that it wouldn't lead anywhere. Suffice to say, I couldn't have been more wrong. Over the past two months, the incredible advice I've received from this forum, the amazing leads you've sent my way, have opened the entire world of possibility. It's thanks to all of you that I'm here, where I am now, sitting in a rental car on a quiet street in Phoenix, Arizona, posting the last of Alice's records. I've realized that I have written more than usual for my part. Apologies for this. If you want to skip straight to Alice's section, that's fine. Otherwise, please consider this the prologue to the epilogue. It's very, very early in the morning over here with only the gravest of the graveyard shift out on the streets. By all rights, I should be in bed and not wasting petrol on an aimless drive through the city. The ritual helps me think, however, and I'd recently been given a lot to think about, courtesy of a young woman at a local bar. She was a forum member who'd contacted me over direct message. When we met up earlier in the night, it was clear she'd done a great deal of research, charting every mirror shop in Phoenix in an attempt to reconstruct the route Alice took on February 7th, 2017. We spoke for quite a while about the game about Alice and about life in general. Once closing time rolled around, she handed me a printout of the most likely route, with all the key locations circled. Then, in the final minutes before we parted ways, she nervously asked me two questions. The first put me in a rather sour mood. The second provided the fuel for my 3am drive. Question one, are you sure she wants you to find her? I've been hearing the same query from a few of you recently, especially since part 9 was posted, people commenting that Alice made a clear choice when she left Rob behind in the Silent City, that I was searching for someone who wasn't seeking return. I'd like to take a moment to respond to this as I responded to it earlier tonight, to be clear the Alice I know wouldn't do that. She was planning to come back, she told us in March. I'm not going to waste your time with my theories, but we've seen what the road can do to people's minds, how it can carry them away against their better judgment. 
I understand why it's being asked, but if those sorts of questions are all you have to offer, I'd kindly ask you to find another way to help. Question two was less clear cut. What are you going to do now? It's something you guys have also been asking me, but that was the first time I'd heard the question out loud. In the awkward silence that followed it became obvious to her, and in some ways to me, that I didn't have an answer yet. I decided to take a drive while I figured it out. I've been in my car for the rest of the night. After an hour of aimless meandering, I realized I was close to one of the marked locations, the alleyway where Alice first entered the underpass, the point at which she first disappeared into the road. Turning into the side street just after a large intersection, I was briefly relieved to see no sign of a tunnel. The part of me that still hoped this game was a fiction swelled at the sudden lack of evidence. My reaction was short-lived, of course, as I quickly realized that the tunnel wouldn't have shown itself to me anyway. Even if the game were real, I'd hardly been sticking to the rules on my way here. There was no denying that the place resembled Alice's descriptions, however, and with a long time to go until I'd feel remotely tired, I decided to work my way back along the route retracing Alice's steps towards Rob Guthard's street. Okay, so I have to admit at this point I suffered from a momentary lapse in intelligence in a fog of distraction, residual jet lag, and general dullardry. I drove for longer than I'd care to admit under the misconception that I wasn't playing the game. I thought this because I was heading in the opposite direction and had started my run with a right-hand turn when the rules explicitly state that you begin by turning left. Of course, as I'm sure all of you would have realized immediately, that didn't mean I was out of the game, it just meant I started playing with my first left turn one road later. Alice was always the smart one. What I'm trying to say is that due to this fairly mindless oversight, I wasn't exactly looking out for the woman in grey as I drove past what should have been her corner. There wasn't a mirror shop this time, of course, that's only the, the 34th turn when you're coming the other way. In fact, I'm not sure which of the many passing streets it was. It is strange, though, as I think back through my journey, I feel like I would have noticed her. The streets were practically deserted, so much so that any pedestrians stood out immediately. I know I should have been looking more closely, but if you asked my honest opinion, I don't think she was there at all. The moment I realized this, I felt it again. The faint, perverse hope that I'd been misled, that the entire story was nothing more than a twisted, elaborate fabrication. It wasn't long until I passed an old mirror shop and 34 turns later arrived on what must have been Alice's starting street. It was an inner-city neighborhood whose residents were all fast asleep. From the moment I realized that the game was in play, I'd been thinking less and less about this particular road, and more about the one directly after it. Resting just beyond the crossroads, I'd come halfway across the world on the strength of Alice's account, but I'd seen no first-hand proof of the left-right game. If the whole thing was a hoax, then the next road should just be another street. If it was real, then I'd know soon enough. I crawled up to the junction with my heart in my throat. With every inch of road that passed under my tires, I found myself hoping more and more that it wouldn't be true. Let someone be playing a prank on me. Let the logs be counterfeit. Let Alice be anywhere else but on that road. 
I took the corner in a wide arc, parking myself in the center of the crossroads, my headlights facing down the next turn. Ahead of me was a quiet, residential street, lines of neatly parked cars, rows of well-kept yards and squarely drawn windows, yet at its center, in utter defiance of the modest surroundings, the roads sank into a deep and dimly lit corridor, cutting beneath the street and disappearing into complete darkness. The tunnel? I'd always known it was true. In the presence of grim confirmation, the question I was asked earlier that night started to ring in my ears as if echoing out of the tunnel itself. After an entire night's driving, after two full months of searching, I still didn't have a response. In the end, I just left the engine running, as if turning it off would somehow be a sign of retreat, and decided to type up the notes you're reading now. I thought maybe the process of putting it all down on paper would bring me clarity, and leave me with either a note of farewell or a note of apology to Alice for not having what it took to find her. And now, here I am, still undecided, still riding, still sitting in this rental car on a quiet street in Phoenix, Arizona. Though perhaps the streets, not as quiet as I thought. I've just looked back to the previous road down the street where Alice began her journey, and as I type this very paragraph, I see a figure standing on the sidewalk, just outside one of the houses. It isn't the woman in gray this time. Though it's almost too dark to make out, I can tell the figure is an older male, well-built and imposing, the rugged features of his weathered face half-lit by moonlight. I've never seen this person before, yet he bears a striking resemblance to another man, a man whose description has been well recorded within the pages of Alice's logs. He watches me in silence, staring through the window of my still-running car. I wonder if he can help. (laughs) That's a really great intro to the last part. You think that's the last we're hearing from the narrator? It, it is. It absolutely is. <sighs> and I think... Uh, <laughs> I think that figure is Rob, and I think Rob is now deeply embedded in the road. The same way the gray woman is, the same way his... Uh, his son's ruined body continues to walk the road... You know, um... His grandson. The, the way Marjorie became the gray woman. No, his his son. When I'm saying that baby, that... Oh, fuck, yeah, remember? the grand... Yeah. That, that was... We never that, really talked that, about that. that. That's that. absolutely his grandson. <laughs> that was what that baby was. <laughs> we didn't talk about that. Yeah, that's what <laughs> happens when you have a baby on the road. Oh, my God. Yeah, I would go crazy if that came out of me, too. <laughs> oh, man, that's Damn. fun. So this is it, the left-right game, February 20th, 2017. The left-right game was once nothing more than a nine-page document peeking out of a yellow envelope resting quietly on my desk. I remember reading it on my lunch break. I remember it made me laugh. The submission had arrived with the first post quietly making its way around the office, treated by everyone as a short-lived novelty of little journalistic value. 
The story was easy to dismiss, appearing all too similar to the rambling ghost stories and blurry UFO sightings that filled our mailbox on a daily basis, and which most of the senior staff had learned to instinctively ignore. Doomed by association, the document was quickly passed over my desk, merely a pit stop on its way to the rejection file. I was curious, however, and after an uneventful few months in my new role, I had no compunctions about fishing from the scrap heap. Placing the envelope in my satchel alongside a misfit crowd of similar rejects, I slipped away to a local coffee shop reading it in an armchair by the window. Somewhere around page 3 between the description of the game's rules and the exhaustive list of required skills, my mouth started to curl in an irrepressible smile. They'd been gloriously wrong about this one. It wasn't some paranoid diatribe nor a sensationalist plea for attention. Within those pages lay an introductory glimpse of a man's passionate obsession. As I read on something about his earnest eccentricity, incredible thoroughness, and unquestioning confidence made it impossible to put down. When I turned the final page, reading the last of Rob Guthard's charming and refreshingly well-formatted submission, I knew that this was the story I wanted to tell. Later that day, I found myself in the editor's office making a case for it. They didn't quite see what I saw, but it, I was intent to win them over regardless. I told them the story would be characterful. Char characterful. <laughs> I think full of character would have been better. Colorful, thought-provoking, and at the very least, that I wouldn't be gone long. It's been 12 days since then, 10 days since I first entered the Wrangler in Phoenix, Arizona, 5 since I commandeered it myself, leaving Rob behind in the silent city. I haven't updated much recently, save for a regular set of notes made for my own benefit. In all honesty, after I finished writing up my account of the city, I was struck by an overpowering sense of needlessness. There was no one left to receive these logs, no friends to proofread, no editor to hand them to. It seemed pointless to maintain the same prosaic format as before. I still largely agree with this assessment. It's only due to a set of exceptional circumstances that I've chosen to type up the following account in full. Whoever this reaches, I want to thank you for reading up to now. I'm quite sure this will be my final installment. The moon has broken, and in my entire life I've never witnessed an evening so still. The air is cool and quiet and the Wrangler cuts cleanly through it as I glide down a stretch of even tarmac. The scene is defined by calm and absence, not a cloud in the sky, not a solitary whisper of breeze, not a single blade of grass stirring on the dark green banks beside me. Yet even on a night as peaceful as this I can't help but feel far away from home. The city has served as a turning point in that regard. Before we reached those titanic monoliths, the landscapes we passed through generally resembled the world I once knew. A few obvious exceptions aside, there was nothing about the environments that looked truly divorced from reality. That all changed now. The aberrant aspects of this new world are unignorable constantly hanging at the corner of my eye, passively injecting a sense of wonder and disconcertion into the otherwise silent night. A few days ago, the moon started to crack like old porcelain. 
I hardly noticed at first, my eyes fixed on the road as it loomed above me, quietly splintering into three jagged pieces. As of tonight, the empty space between each fragment has significantly increased. If I focus on the sky for a little while, I can almost see them falling away from each other, charting infinite and lonesome trajectories through a barren cosmos against a backdrop of foreign constellations. The stars themselves fall further than they should. The night sky travels down, past the horizon, as it continues below it, wrapping underneath the grassy bank. It's as if the road and the narrow plains on either side are suspended in the middle of a vast abyss. A platform in the middle of open space. <laughs> cosmic. This is, getting, this is getting real freaky. Cosmic fucking highway. <laughs> That's what I said in episode one. At least that's what I thought it was at first. Shit! <laughs> it didn't take long before I noticed the broken moon was appearing twice in the sky, both above and below me. A pair of orbiting satellites identical and in perfect alignment. That's when I realized that there were no stars below me. I was merely staring across a flat surface so flawlessly mirror-like as to cast a perfect reflection of the heavens above. I was driving through the center of a lake. The water is impossibly still. Since leaving the shoreline proper yesterday night, I've seen neither a wave nor a ripple across its placid surface. It's also undeniably vast, reaching beyond the horizon in every direction and continuing further still. Could you imagine a huge body of still water? Absolutely not. And your road is just in the middle of it? How terrifying. No. Oh my goodness. Without being sure how I know, I'm aware that the water carries on for an unspeakable distance that I would sooner reach the stars themselves before setting foot on its opposite shore. I lean over and switch gears. The act of driving the Wrangler was a daunting one at first, but after the first two days, I've managed to make do. An old scarf wrapped tightly around the steering wheel serves as a makeshift handle, allowing me to navigate corners one-handed. I don't have an elegant solution for the gear shift, but I've quickly grown used to the process. If I've learned anything from the road, it's that grace is the first casualty in the fight for survival. Adaptability, no matter how clumsy, outlasts it at every turn. A few minutes later, the Wrangler pulls up to a spacious verge, a large circle of land surrounded entirely by dark waters. At the far end, the grass seems to fall away, dropping sharply into the lake with a dead stop. The road continues, of course, but it's the only thing that does. With nothing on either side, it forms a narrow bridge of perfectly flat asphalt raised on a bed of mud and rock. I pressed my boot onto the brake pedal, easing the Wrangler to a steady halt at the center of the clearing. For the first time today, I open the car door and climb out of my seat. The dull tap of asphalt shifts to a soft rustling as I make my way over to the lakeside. There's something on the shore. A barely discernible object, almost entirely concealed by a shock of verdant undergrowth. It's a miracle I'd managed to spy it from the road, though perhaps something about the stark uniformity of the landscape had made it stand out. As I advance towards the water, and the object draws near, its indeterminate form solidifies in my mind. 
It's a human arm, reaching out from the water and onto the bank. I crouch down to examine the few pertinent details. The fingers are still embedded firmly into the soil. The thumbnail is broken, colored by a peeling coat of faded varnish. There's a pallid, emaciated quality to the skin spreading down the arm until it disappears beneath a thick woolen sleeve. At the point it meets the surface, the water soaks into the fabric, turning it black from the original gray. With a sad exhalation, I rise to my feet and lean over the water's edge. The body of Marjorie Guthard lies against the silt, her cheek resting on the lake bed, her wide, bewildered eyes staring out into the open lake. She's been almost perfectly preserved, save for the striking tautness of her skin and its mottled gray pallor. She looks exactly like the woman I saw on the 34th turn who tried to repel me from the road, who'd spoken of a lake drinking her wounds clean. It seems her ramblings weren't completely void of fact. It's clear to see that Marjorie has been exsanguinated so completely in fact that the only evidence that blood ever flowed through her veins is a large dark stain across her shredded blouse. It doesn't take long before the perpetrator makes itself known. As I stare into the water, a steady stream of formless whispers sink up through the depths of the lake. The softly spoken murmurings drift up to my ears, taking root in the back of my mind and instantly blooming into a flurry of deeply persuasive promises. It's the underworld, man. I find myself entirely transfixed by the still water. This would be the sticks in, in this situation. As a myriad of generous offerings unfold in throughout my consciousness, the whispers suggest an end to the phantom pains in my absent arm, perhaps even a completely restored limb, stronger than it had been before. Furthermore, it shows me a glimpse of its incomprehensible span, its furthest bank reaching across countless worlds, its deepest point lying below everything. I'm offered total knowledge of every league, every fathom, every inconceivable shore. My hand reaches down as the whispers continue, every bargain steeped in sweet beneficence. A moment later, my outstretched fingers brush against the soft grasp and wrap around Marjorie's exposed arm. Digging my heels into the ground, I lean myself backwards and pull. The water ripples and splashes as I drag Marjorie's lifeless body slowly onto the bank. I feel the voices in my mind grow louder, erupting in anger as I back away from the lake. The promises had been convincing, each quiet solicitation undeniably persuasive. But after seeing Marjorie's wretched fate and the look of eternal betrayal in her vacant eyes, I found myself aware of a subtle undercurrent behind every syllable. A sense of desperation and timeless hunger emanating from beneath the lake's surface. I already have a clear understanding of what would have happened if I'd have lost myself to those waters. I suspect it's no coincidence that of the countless shores it showed me, all of them appeared to be deserted. Marjorie wouldn't have stood a chance. She'd left the forest alone, grievously wounded, and without a vehicle. She'd walked the whole way here, bleeding endlessly, the road's rejuvenating power battling every moment against her body's natural inclination to die. 
I suspect the road's influence wasn't strong enough, and when a whispering voice promised, ever so sweetly to mend her, she would have been in no position to refuse. Her other sleeve brushed against dry land, her body leaving the water for the first time in decades. I keep pulling until my boots hit asphalt, laying her down on the grass just beside the wrangler. After a moment of sober vigil, I walk to the back of the car and fetch Rob's foldable spade. A long few hours follow. I've never dug someone's grave before, and my injury is hardly conductive to the task. <laughs> my fleece tied around my waist, pearls of sweat running down my brow. I manage to slowly chip away at the damp earth. Five hours later, my back cramping, my hand raw from gripping the shovel, I attempt to lower Marjorie into the rough pit with some semblance of grace, her legs dropping limply into the soft soil despite my best efforts. It takes over an hour to shovel the soil back. Oh shit. It's a sobering and ugly task. Oh god. As a layer of dirt covers her face. I realize this will be the last time a living person lays their eyes on Marjorie Guthard. Guthard. Sorry. Guthard. Marjorie Guthard. Burying her suddenly feels disrespectful, as if it's an act I don't have the right to perform. Once it's done, I drop onto my knees, a dull ache in my muscles as I smooth out the disturbed ground with the back of the shovel. You. Even before I turned to face her, I could hear a scowl in her voice. There's an odious depth to that one acrid syllable. A potent witch's brew of contempt and accusation that feels like it's been festering in her drowned lungs for decades. Reluctantly, I rise to my feet and turn around, finding myself face to face with the woman I just buried. She looks different now. Her clothes are dry, her skin clear, with nothing to be seen of the deep, dark gash in her blouse. Marjorie? Unlike the empty vessel below us, the woman in front of me is by no means at peace. She shakes and retches with the same indignant fury I witnessed when we first met. When she speaks, her words shudder under the weight of her own turbulent emotions. I chased you. I ran to you. I... I gave him up for you. I'm, I'm sorry, Marjorie. I, I don't know what you mean. Tell me what you mean. The things I saw, things so beautiful, and I saw her walking alone through the new worlds. I gave everything up for you. I don't know quite what to say. It's pointless to ask her what she means, to try and understand her frenetic ramblings. In the end, I can only try to speak her language. Marjorie, I... I didn't mean you to... Marjorie's trembling breaths burst into a despairing fit of laughter. Oh, oh, yes you did, yes you did, and now, now you're here! Marjorie's wild and volatile demeanor shifts once more, her laughter degrading further into a desperate crying panic. And what do I do now? What what do I do? Marjorie cringes with the terror of the self-imposed question, placing her head in her hands and repeating it over and over again. As I watch her wrestle with despair, I'm struck by an idea I've never before considered. 
The disconcerting notion that in death we are not transported to a set destination by some ethereal attendant, that in fact nothing is decided for us, perhaps the manner in which we spend our afterlife is down to us, a decision we have to make ourselves. Marjorie is standing over her own lifeless body, still lost, still entirely unmoored. There's no sign of boundless paradise, inescapable damnation, or everlasting nothingness, and the common thread they share, a final release from the weight of our own agency, is similarly absent. Perhaps we never get that freedom. Perhaps we continue like we always do, accompanied by all our imperfections, uncertainty, and discontent. Perhaps we must choose our eternity. Wow. After all my time on the road, that's possibly the most terrifying notion I've encountered. That is... Well, that, then, okay. I just don't buy it. Let me just step back. Like, Sure. I, Let's swallow it. I am a person who has... Uh, I partially believe that It's like choice, House on Haunted Hill. Or not. That's not what it's called. Haunting on Hill House. Haunting of Hill House. I haven't watched it yet. I'm sorry. Fuck. I'm sorry. Fuck. I've been doing a lot of stuff. And now I wanted to mention that I'm I do not believe that there is such a thing as choice. I don't you I think there's your I think destiny it, is pre planned and I you're think, just following a path. No, I think we're we we're programmed to do the things we do based just I think on neuroscience. I think neuroscience so challenges be, the idea of freedom a, of choice. Oh, interesting. I think freedom of choice is an illusion. Well, yeah, but then you're still saying that there's a preordained choice that we will always make and that sure, but and that we will always travel down that fork in the road. Sure. I don't want you to mistake me for thinking that there's a destiny and a and a plan. I'm just saying that it will like for instance, okay, have you ever heard of chaos theory? Yeah. So that it appears to be random, or in this case, it appears to be a freedom of the choice, so mm-hmm. technically random. But really, it's preordained and it's very mathematically complex that it happens as a result of the initial, at the initial starting point of, yeah. the, whole, of the whole system. Mm-hmm. So for humans and for living things, I think even though we appear to have choices, it's all dependent on... Initial circumstances starting at our own conception as an individual. So sure. so I challenge that statement she makes with we must choose our eternity. I mean, I don't know. I, I wouldn't buy it. Maybe I wouldn't buy I it. I wouldn't either. Like I already said, I'm not buying it. I don't think I don't think we choose our eternity. I think um there's a lot of complex mechanisms that we subjectively in either inherit or adopt over the span of which time we call our lives, mm-hmm. that it is far too hard to say that the same child who died from cancer, you know, at uh, two years after being born, was able to choose their eternity when I am 26 sitting on exactly. this couch choosing to get high and just happening to not have cancer at the age of two and dying. Precisely. There's there's too much... There is too much chaos to be able to sit back and say we have a choice. Mm-hmm. I think um, that's always been one of my biggest problems with religion. 
That's been one of my biggest problems with the notion of an afterlife. Where is the judgment? Where does it lie? And why in the fuck do we believe that something else chooses for us? Hmm. So I have a lot of issues with that, but it's an interesting notion that she thinks she chose her eternity because she has somehow ended up on the road. I think the protagonist, the narrator who has uploaded these files to Reddit, I think he knew the real Alice, and I think Mm -hmm. the real Alice wouldn't have gotten this far if she made that realization earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, um, if she chose her own eternity, then what she's choosing right now is a lack of reality. Yeah. And there's nothing mature about that. There's nothing eternal about that. It's escapism. Mm -hmm. She's choosing to live forever on a fucked up road that bends time and space Instead of going back to her normal life and trying to do something with it. That's not that's not choosing your eternity. That's escaping from our set laws, yeah. our set physics, our set time, our set space. And that would be furthermore implying that people have that choice. N- no one has that choice. She stumbled upon that choice. Yeah. Fuck off with you and your... We choose our eternity. This this is kind of ruining the ending of this story for me because it's just like, no, you ended up on this through so much backwards fucking happenstance pageantry out the window. Mm-hmm. So, you know, no way in hell am I glass half full or glass half empty. I say, why the fuck are we filling the glass at all? Mm-hmm. <laughs> just give me some fucking water. <laughs> Speaking of glass... Who I has got, soda? I gotta, I gotta get a glass of Coke. <laughs> you do, don't you? I can taste it without even just... Oh, no, no. No, no, I'm Just not... down it. All right. Thank you. <laughs> After all my time on the road, that's possibly the most terrifying notion I've encountered. He never stopped looking, you know. Marjorie snaps out of her wretched despair, instantly aware of who I'm referring to staring up at me with an expression I've never seen her wear before. I saw him, walking on the road. He didn't stop. He was never going to stop. I think he was looking for you, Marjorie. He still is. Marjorie stares through me for the first time since we met on that quiet Phoenician corner. I can see the faint spark of something other than misery and rage across her tear-stained face. I hold her gaze for a moment more before pulling my phone from my pocket. In a single sweep of my contacts, I delete every number except for one. A number I pulled from the Nokia during our second night on the road. A number that connects to a lost wanderer of the road. I don't know if this can help, but stranger things have happened. As she stares up into my eyes, I feel like we're finally meeting for the first time. Without a word, Marjorie reaches out a quivering hand and takes the phone from my outstretched fingers. Before I can say anything more, Marjorie Guthard is gone. Now, Marjorie was, what, the daughter-in-law? Yes. Of Rob? Yes. It was uh, Bobby's wife. Yes. Okay. A few moments later, a refreshing breeze lands against my cheek, a soft zephyr cooling my still warm face. It's a welcome sensation and the first movement I've witnessed in the air since I set out onto the lake. Wiping the sweat from my forehead, I stare quietly along the bridge, the breeze picking up around me. 
It's a subtle wind at first, brushing stray hairs across my forehead, chilling the perspiration on my neck. Yet as I reach my hand out and feel the air slip between my fingers, I'm witness to a steady rise in both strength and magnitude. The sound of the wind grows from a whisper to a howl. Seconds later, the hanging sleeves of my fleece begin to stream sideways. My hair lifts from my back, billowing in the throes of a developing gale. I back up against the wrangler's hood as the air finally erupts into a roaring, cacophonous cyclone. My hand reflexively seeks the sturdy frame of the wrangler, my fingers wrapping around the grill, my arm tensing as the unrelenting wind threatens to drag me from the road. Squinting through the violent tempest, I focus on a single point in space, just above the threshold of the bridge. In the midst of the storm, a jagged line of white-hot light bursts out of the ether, tearing through the night's fabric, a crackling fissure that widens and yawns, forcing apart the curtains of reality as they frenetically struggle to recombine. Staring through the shuddering fracture, I'm subjected to the briefest glimpse of a boundless and impossible vista. It is a faraway place in both distance and time an achingly beautiful and gloriously terrifying dreamscape enduring on the majestic shores of infinity. Every moment there spans a millennium and unfolds in countless directions at once. Every passing shadow holds a darkness beyond measure, their edges burned by the glare of a waking sun which looks across every conceivable world with a hollow, rancorous intent. In the midst of this maddening landscape, a singular entity approaches, gliding towards the portal with the clear intent to pass through. As it breaches the shuddering gateway, and the wind dies down around it, I stare up at its grand celestial form. The being is unlike anything I've ever seen, composed entirely from electric arcs of brilliant, magnesic light which burst from a volatile and blinding central core. It sounds like a lightning storm, its plasmatic tendrils snapping and crackling, bursting chaotically through the night air before collapsing in on themselves. As they fall back into the creature's center, they emit pale clouds of vaporous fractals that fade softly into the air. Somehow, even as my eyes barely adjust to the stark light, I realize that the entity usually burns much brighter. It's dampened its glow for my benefit so that it can appear before me without scorching my eyes from their sockets. It's you, isn't it? You're the voice I've been hearing. You're the one who brought me here. The bristling maelstrom of light hangs in the air, crackling and shifting, its transient limbs strobing with chaotic incandescence. Part of me wants to hide, part of me wants to run, but neither are an option anymore. Releasing my hand from the wrangler's grill, I take a single step forward, standing on my own and staring up into the entity's smoldering core. Can I get an interview? <laughs> the creature doesn't react. In the following silence, I feel it observing me. When it finally responds, its voice ruptures the night, echoing through my skull. There is little time, but you may ask what questions you have. It's doing an interview. Here on The Tonight Show, it's The Entity with Alice Sharma. How are you doing tonight? 
Right. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> We're like um, Garth and Cat, <laughs> the uh, SNL. Uh, Fred Armisen and yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah. So so here's where I'm at right now. This being kind of reminds me of. Have you seen Annihilation, Natalie Portman? No. At one point, she beats. She, she meets something that is supposed to be what one can only assume an alien and the next evolution of humanity, and all it can really do is. M- Mimic. It's almost like it's a freshly created organism, and it uh, it doesn't quite understand what's going on. And for some reason, I, I like I, for some reason, at least imagery wise, I'm I'm like thinking of that scene. But I really don't know how else to rationalize this thing. It is, is it a god? Is it a thing beyond time and space? Is it an alien? Is it an interdimensional alien? You know, how, how do you quantify it? Mm-hmm. Each reverberating syllable forms a string of literal shockwaves in the surrounding lake, emanating outwards from the being in a perfect circle. I watch the waves roll into the distance, showing no sign of ever diminishing, and I think about what question to ask first. I like that it's asking questions, because that implies we're going to get answers. Which is something we didn't think. No. In the end, it comes to me quickly, well, I promise. I, I think I suggested it might come to that. Did you? I think... That we might get answers? I suggest that Alice might get some answers, and then... But it comes at a cost. Interesting. Yeah. In the end, it comes to me quickly. A promise is a promise after all. What happened to Marjorie? Why did she do what she did? The being pauses as if considering its response, and when it does reply, it speaks with a calm sobriety. She glimpsed an echo of the future, dreamed of the road, of the things that it passes through. Like, what's ever through there? I gestured through the gateway, which is now almost entirely blocked from the view by the creature's spiraling form. She dreamed of untold frontiers. She saw a lone woman walking them. Over time, the fulfillment of that vision became everything to her. But it wasn't her. She thought she was seeing her own future, but it was... It It was was you. Those three words, as they burst into the open air, casting three narrow waves across the boundless water hit me with a deep and heavy force. Unbeknownst to myself decades before I was even born, Marjorie had been driven insane by dreams of maddening grandeur, of a life of boundless possibility and true significance. She had given everything up to chase a shadow. A shadow that eventually turned out to be mine. I hadn't just pulled Rob into this game, I was the reason for everything. I was the cause for the tragedy that befell his entire family. She didn't just dream those sights, you influenced her, you let her see them. The same way you made Rob see me in Okagara. You pushed and you prodded wherever you needed so that I'd end up here. Are you the reason Bobby got the rules in the first place? Yes. But why? 
You toyed with so many lives across decades. Why me? Why does it matter that I travel the road? Because across all humanity, across every conceivable permutation, you are the one who makes it the furthest. It speaks plainly as if the statement were a foregone conclusion, yet its words strike me into silence. The creature continues. I've watched you work your way here through skill and through tenacity, and undeniably through luck. You were brought here because of these qualities, and they will carry you further along the road than any other. Then why didn't you just bring me here? All that influence, and you didn't lift a finger after everything that happened. Events transpired as, as they, they needed, needed to. to. As they needed to? People died. Marjorie, Bobby, Ace, Apollo, Eve, Lilith, everyone. They're all gone. Do you not care at all? In response to my words, the entity remains silent for longer than usual. I care more than you know. There are things greater than your understanding, forces that exist beyond the realms of your comprehension that you would consider a threat to everything you hold dear. My actions were guided by a higher standard of knowledge. Your protests are predicated on false understanding. You're saying I don't understand death. You don't. That still doesn't make it right. Regardless, my influence is necessary. That which is necessary must be. What even are you? I cannot answer that question in any way you'd understand. That's not good enough. The creature doesn't respond. As if it doesn't feel it needs to. So far it's returned my every argument with impenetrable certainty. From the domain it occupies, knowing what it knows, my arguments must seem entirely facile. Even if it did feel the need to justify itself after seeing the place it hails from, I wonder if there's any way I could ever comprehend its motives. Still, that doesn't mean my arguments are invalid, and the creature's lofty dispassion does little more than stoke my desire to oppose it. And what if I don't want any part of this? Oh man, this is thick. You are traveling the apparent strand, a singularly stable flaw in the fabric of reality. As it carries you further from the world you know, you will be freed from the influence of the old laws. You have already noticed the effects in those who settled the road, those who were lost to it and in yourself, energy without consumption, knowledge without requisite experience. You are shedding entropy and causality in time you will reach realms of understanding you cannot currently fathom. You will find answers to questions you never thought to ask. You will discover absolute truth. For this reason, you will carry on. That's the only reason? Do you need another? It doesn't come across as a question, but rather another blunt statement of fact. I understand the effect it's speaking of. Ever since the city, I've been encountering vague notions and fragmented ideas that occur to me randomly and without announcement. New avenues of thought leading to revelations that would otherwise lie beyond my mortal reach. 
I've started to comprehend things I could barely have conceived of back home, and though the onset of these notions had been terrifying at first, they grow less so with every passing day. No. No, I don't trust you. I don't. Your trust is immaterial. You will travel the road regardless. The creature's already stark glow starts to intensify. I've watched you on every turn, across every moment of your journey. One of the creature's countless protrusions lashes out at the empty air, forming another harsh, glowing fissure. It wrenches itself open, and a few stilted jolts a transparent, almost crystalline membrane stretched across the gap. Through it, I can see myself. In the center of a cornfield, examining a block of C4 explosive. It's as if I'm staring into the past through a dragged shard of one-way glass. I've watched you questioning. Though we can't be seen through the aperture, I see the glass-like membrane shake with the force of the creature's voice. As the window collapses, I can see the rows of corn thrown into a frenzy. A second arc lashes out at the sky, forming a second aperture. This time I'm expecting the sight before me. I see myself, crying in the forest, a silent radio by my side. I've watched you struggle. The second window closes. The creature has made its point. I've watched you fight to make your way here. You will not turn around. You make it sound like I don't have a choice. You do have have a choice, Alice, but you have already made it. Okay, so see what I mean about how... Now, me me speaking about me in real life. You talking about you and how you think and how he's he's talking. That statement kind of... Is pretty close. Echoes what I kind of think. It's pretty close to what you just said. Yeah. That's very funny. I put that together. It's interesting. Um, It's a methodology of speaking. I just don't know what... um, with what finality it's called. It's absolutely a method of of thought. As much as I've grown to detest the creature's presumption, in that moment I know it's right. What it's saying is true. I've done things I never would have imagined in order to get where I am now. In fact, if this being hadn't arrived at all, I'd already be heading out over the bridge. I'm not proud of what drives me, that same ugly impulse that led me to refuse Rob's offer of return that made it so easy to leave him behind in the silent city, but there's no denying the impulse is there. It's been with me the whole time, long before I ever arrived in Phoenix, Arizona, and it's buried deeper than I'd ever wanted to admit. Can I... do I... get to say goodbye? The entity says nothing. It hangs in the air, flickering and coursing with rupturing bolts of light. The next thing I hear is a faint mechanical hum emanating from the wrangler behind me. Turning around, I pace briskly back to the car, opening the door, and reaching into the passenger seat. My notebook is booting up, seemingly of its own accord. Picking up the laptop, I lift the lid as I march back towards the bridge. I stare up at the silent being before me. When I look down at the laptop, my email client is already displayed on the screen. How... how, how long do I have? Long enough. The entity begins to regress, its arcs diminishing as the being at its core turns away. Its message has been delivered. There is nothing more to discuss. As it passes through the gateway into an unknowable world far removed from my own, I call out after it. 
I'm still not certain I trust you. The being focuses on me once more as the fracture begins to close. A final set of waves pass across the surface of the lake as it solemnly replies, I remember. A moment later, the being is gone. I stand motionless in the middle of the road, the entity's final remarks washing over me, its curious choice of words echoing in my head. In the renewed silence, the faint stirrings of an overwhelming and terrible revelation start to form in my mind. It could have simply said, I think I get what it's saying, I'll wait. It could have simply said that it knew of my mistrust, that it had heard the overtones in my voice, saw the disdain across my face, or otherwise sensed it in the space between us. Instead, the being spoke as if my current feelings were a memory, dwelling somewhere within its depths. It was undeniable that my time on the road was changing me, but in all this time I've never truly considered how those changes might evolve as my journey continues. I'd never thought about what I might gain, what I might lose, or about what I might inevitably become. A short while passes before I lower my eyes from the empty space above the bridge to the screen of my notebook. Lowering myself down, I cross my legs and rest my back against the Wrangler. If you've been reading from the beginning, you finally caught up with me. I hope you'll allow me a few personal messages. To Rob. I hope you're able to read this someday, and I am so, so sorry for everything I've done, for everything I may do. I hope you understand that I didn't know, and that none of this was your fault. You did the best you could, and the days I spent with you were the most significant of my life. It was an honor to know you, and I hope that among these pages, you find the answers and the peace that you deserve. To my mom and dad, I'm sorry I won't be sending this to you. In the end, I was carried along this road by a profound selfishness, and I just can't bring myself to face you. I can't imagine the pain I'll be putting you through, and I won't try to justify my actions. All I can say is that I love you, and I'm sorry that my last act towards you was one of cowardice. And finally, to you, the person to whom this message will be addressed, I'm sorry. I always thought I'd see you again someday, that the roads I took would eventually lead me home, that doesn't look so likely now, though I could say a lot to you I'm not going to. But I wish we could have been friends for longer. It feels like a lifetime since I first arrived at Rob Guthard's quiet street. I remember the uncertainty as I waited for him to open his door with no conceivable idea what was about to transpire. Like so many other things, that's now changed. Despite being in an entirely new world, further from home than anyone's ever been, I know exactly what's going to happen next. I'm going to take a drive, take a left, then the next possible road on the right, then the next possible left. I will repeat the process ad infinitum until I wind up somewhere new. And from there, I'll keep driving beyond worlds, beyond time, beyond the bounds of my imagining to a place where the lake runs dry, where the broken moon drifts away and the stars disappear in the rear view, to a place where everything has fallen away and the road is all there is.
Fuck. You know what else that made me think of? So I kind of... So as we were doing the whole um, voice thing, I slowly started to realize that this thing she's talking to is absolutely the future form of herself herself. if she continues doing this shit. Yeah. And... um, That's what I remember, man. Yeah, I mean, that that's the conclusion, but I, 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 like, I had an inkling as we were starting, like, you know, it agrees to do an interview, it had a human element to it. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know what the ending makes me think of? You ever see, uh, the movie Interstellar? Yeah. Matthew McConaughey goes into a black hole and becomes, like, a fifth dimensional, you know, alien for a little bit there. And he kind of plays around with everyone, you know, the fate of humanity and the fate of, you know, yeah. life itself. But it's illustrated in such a surreal and dimension-bending way. Yeah. And when he comes out of it, you know, life itself had changed. And I think, like, I had the same feelings watching that movie that I do reading this final part. Because it's not that it's disappointing, it's just that it's it's finite. Yeah. There's nothing more to grasp. Yeah. I'm not disappointed. I'm I'm content with how it ended. In fact I yeah. think yeah. in fact, if we really think about it, what I said in episode one is still kind of right. She leaves this plane of existence yeah, you're right, for dude. one among the stars in the dimensions of world and space and time. You're right. I was just completely fucked up on the fact that it would be, like, in a car as a person. I thought the idea of her always driving on the road, just being a cool dude in her Wrangler, would be all that there is. But evidently, time and space is a lot more... Uh, a lot more intense. <laughs> you become a big old magnetic weird light creature. <laughs> Isn't that something? And she chose to do that, by the way. She chose to become a giant magnetic light creature. Bullshit. <laughs> oh, it's it's weird. It's a weird ending. Yeah, it is. It's like a Twilight Zone ending. Yeah, the Marjorie part was weird. Yeah, I thought the Marjorie part was weird, too. Seemed kind of... Thrown in there? Yeah. For the whole story, we don't even know who Marjorie is, and then all of a sudden, Alice cares about who she is. Mm. Marjorie's disappearance is the catalyst for a lot of what the story takes place, but it's Alice's fault that she goes crazy, because she, you know, she has all these visions of... Mm. Of Alice and you know she's jealous of Alice and what Alice becomes and she just doesn't know that it's Alice that she's looking to become Mm -hmm. and you know her destiny was flawed from the get-go you know she was just her path ended in a different way and you know she will forever be that angry woman outside the mirror store because yeah because she misread her Afterlife. Yeah. She misread her destiny. And the same could be said for Rob when you take the 34 turns back towards his house. You know, he was obviously there. Um, I think that confirms his death. You know, he was a shade sitting on that street watching that corner 
um, possibly for the narrator, the protagonist. Is there something to be gleamed from reading this? Absolutely. I think this is probably one of the best written no-sleep stories in existence. I think so many times I found myself saying, wow, this is like book-quality writing. This is really great vocabulary, really great descriptions. The characters were relatively well-developed and not too one-note. That was my biggest biggest fear going into this entire thing was that it would be one note for 300 pages, you know, and that didn't happen. So you got to take your hat off at some point to kind of say, you know what, I do think this is one of the best. You know, I think um, my, my experience in reading creepypasta and no sleep stories this long is usually... Wow, that's a great story. Baraska was like 120 pages. 50 Foot Ant was like, I think, 400 or 500. And this one was almost three, I think. Or possibly more. Mm. 70 times 5. 350. I don't remember it being 350, but it could have been 300 some pages. Uh, yeah. Something, yeah, um, yeah. That being said, you know, um, how do you feel about the ending? I appreciated its implications, and I, I personally appreciated where it went in the realm of uh, philosophical debate and metaphysics. That is one thing we always kind of loved ever since the beginning Yeah. about it, is how it makes you think. Yeah, it really does, about a lot of different things. Um, and you have to feel at least a little bit a little bit of apprehension towards the ending just due to the fact that it kind of looks at the idea of a preordained path or a lack of choice for humanity as kind of an explanation for things. So yeah, what does this story suggest? I mean, it it explicitly said that you had a choice, but you already made it. Which kind of goes along the lines of how I would describe choice as being um, an illusion, but it's an illusion that actually it has yeah a preordained path according to initial start circumstances. So I don't I don't know this story. Yeah, it is actually not more. I think about it, the way this story brings up the idea of choice is it's it's. It's kind of nihilistic. At the end of the day, it's kind of nihilistic. It's gonna. It's saying that you're going to die at this moment because it was always your point to die here. No matter how many times Ace decides to join the... Caravan. The caravan in every dimension and every time and space, when it comes to the road, he is always going to die at jubilation, and there is nothing he can do about that. And wherever he may be now, on the road, or in life, he is powerless. Yeah. Does that make does that make the road the end game like the ultimate immortality, the ultimate afterlife, but but only meant for one person. I think. I think its seclusion is almost its its downfall. 
I think the fact that I don't know though. I think that the fact that the voice, the exclusivity, I think is interesting. You think that's the point? No, I don't think that's the point. I think the point of this whole this whole story was to basically what you said in the first episode of our of our recording. It really to discover a new plane of which to travel through, whether it be more uh, um, more dimensionally rather than uh, on Literally. one plane on one plane of existence. I guess yeah, that's a that's a good way of putting the point. You know, and I think it raises questions, and but I don't think like for instance this whole choice thing. I don't think it's that that is a point of the story. I think it's just a question that. It rises naturally when we're discussing it and, and analyzing it. That's what a good story does. Sure. Know? I think my biggest issue with the ending is honestly it's closed-mindedness. And How's that? Allow me to elaborate. I think, I think it sets itself up for failure. I think the fact that... Or maybe not. Let me put it this way. She sends the left-right game out into the ether. And multiple people pick up on it. So why is the road only meant for Alice? How have we not met other people? Why is it only people Alice knew? Or Alice had things explained to her? If the road is something that bends space and time, why do we have all of our questions answered? Then it's because it's exactly like you said, episode of the Twilight Zone. But I'm also, I'm arguing with myself here. Yeah. Because then that stands to reason, maybe, maybe no one else travels it. That's the only, that's the only truth I can gleam from this kind of contradictory notion is that if the narrator the the uploader the friend from london were to travel on the road it would almost ruin the entire story well okay that's interesting i get it because he was never there yeah so you're you are really holding the idea that alice i'm holding is, its rules no what i was, what I was gonna say is that okay. you're, you're holding alice's uh ethereal immortal form as being the ultimate purpose of this this whole game so yeah if if the narrator or anyone else hereafter well it's because that's what she says she says that the immortal being at the end of the road is the ultimate gain choosing her afterlife her afterlife is not an afterlife it's an eternity as a god being i don't think that's very fair (laughs) so so here's so that's why i'm deconstructing it is I wish the story, if there is one thing that I could, one nugget of truth or uh, opinion, criti- critical opinion that I can offer to the writer of this story that would have changed my entire feeling about the ending, is if the voice did not refer to itself as one person, but a many, a vast collection of people across time and space. Mm-hmm. I feel like that was the only way for it to redeem itself to me. As a story at the very end. I think the fact that it is an evolution of Alice kind of breaks the story. Because it's too clean. Mm. 
Okay. There, it, it is too hard for me to believe that after spreading the story and getting that conclusion and having it out there in the world, people people read this. Yeah. We are in the universe of this story, and we just found out that there's an immortality, and we can become giant light being things as long as we, you know, stick to Alice's roadmap. Should we try it? (laughs) It's funny. It's funny and completely illogical. Of course you're going to end somewhere new if you keep taking lefts and rights because you'd be driving forever. <laughs> you'd end up somewhere. So, you know, um, that's, that's always been the funniest thought about the entire story is it's kind of simple concept regaled as cosmic mysteriousness. <laughs> you know, uh, what is it? The, uh, it's the mystery box. As J.J. Abrams would put it. It's the mechanism for which cannot be explained, but therefore exists in order to tell the story and in order to exist within intrigue. Jeez, yeah. (laughs) It is its own MacGuffin. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting to think about, and I... And I like that even a half hour after reading it, I'm still trying to wrap my head around it. Dude. <laughs> and I wonder why... Baraska I... haunted me for weeks after reading it. You know, I wished I hadn't. <laughs> that's that's how I felt after Baraska. After this, I'm just kind of like, huh. After this, I'm not wondering anymore why I have such bad anxiety in general. It's because I indulge myself too much in this kind of thought. On a daily basis. <laughs> On a daily I'm driving basis. myself insane. <laughs> I need to be put into a car. Driving? <laughs> <laughs> oh, where are we going? Where Where are you going to end up? Oh, insanity. That's fine. I think that's jubilation. Do we, um, would you imply that any of our oh, the... conspiracy theories came true? Well, I'm almost... I really Symbolism still wise. I still want to ride that theory about this being on the, the underworld. River of, the underworld, the river of I sticks. I really do want to ride that. I maybe it's not directly but it's it's got an influence. But so much of it it's is, got is like wink wink nod yeah. nod nudge nudge. Ferryman. Even at the very end with pulling um a near perfect human soul out of a dark whispering river is like yep. river sticks 101 yeah. that's like that's even disney river sticks 101 you know um yeah so much of this story so is drawn from other works of fiction and other greek mythologies and classic tales of voyages across many plains and um I don't know if at the end of the day it it definitely doesn't have a 10 out of 10 on on being the underworld it doesn't. Nope. I think too much of it too much of it too much of its mechanisms um defy that logic. The fact that the road fights back with weird little things defies the logic of the underworld mm-hmm. because the underworld doesn't try to kill the people that visit it. The underworld just kind of does what it exists does. Does what within it does. its circle. Yeah. Um, you but, know, but that's, that's the only real true difference I could 
I could claim, but that's still like so I used there's to... still one point in every part that does that. Yeah. What dismantled a little bit more of the theory though is that I used to think that voice was maybe something akin to Hades, but now we learned that it's an ethereal god. It's none other than potentially Alice. Well, it it is and isn't Alice, but to to say that would be to okay, yeah. go into quantum theory and evolution and all this other yeah. shit. How so, much time had passed and so does, like does experiencing time in a non-linear sense influence the way you grow and change biologically, uh, anatomically. Oh yeah. That's fun. That's fun to think about. I um we were wrong about Rob. Rob is not, you know, the fairy man. He is not yeah. he is he's actually destined to die and that is, I think, the saddest part about our conspiracy kind of failing. Yeah. Because um, I almost saw a kind of sweet... You know, if... Let me give you... Let me run the creepypasta ending by you, because we got the no sleep ending for all the existential sad people on Reddit. Okay. Um, let me run the creepypasta ending by you real quick. She gets to the end of the road and saves Marjorie, waking her up. But as she looks off into the distance, she sees uh, someone standing in the middle of the road, and it's, like, totally Rob, and he's there, and he's like, thank you for saving Marjorie. Uh, uh, by the way, she was the only thing holding me back, and now I am the, the, the road. I have, I have taken my... You have done what I was unable to do, and you have... Uh, dislodged my only draw to the road, so now I may evolve to become what I was always meant to become on the road, which is whatever the fuck I want to be. And he turns into the voice that she always worried about, the ferryman of the damned, the person who constantly tries to bring people to the road to sacrifice them to the road so that he may last eternal as the only being that exists on this road. Huh. You know, that's like the creepypasta ending is like, he really is the Grim Reaper and he is just drawing people to this death mechanism because it gives him enjoyment, <laughs> you know? Um, I like this ending a little bit better. <laughs> you know, of course you do, because no one actually likes creepypasta endings. Did anyone actually listen to the end of Bedtime? Like, one of the best creepypastas ever? The the ending is garbage. <laughs> like, yeah, that's the difference between, you know, a not hot but spicy versus a no sleep versus something that existed, you know, in... T in uh, Ted's Caver story, for example, you know, something that existed before Creepypasta and before Reddit No Sleep. Like, that's just the stereotypical or archetypal difference between a Creepypasta and a No Sleep. But anyway, um, this has been a fucking journey. I And it is one it. of it is one of the funnest things we've done on this show. I'm going to miss sitting on this couch and acting like we're on a caravan together, <laughs> playing these voices and doing these things. I think this is going to go down as one of my favorite things we've done on, on lots of pasta. I think it's, it you know, it beats... I hold, I hold a lot of things in regard. And I think like the game special I did with Django, um, the, uh, interview tapes I did with Sir Booberry, um, 
in your case, the, the left, right game and whistlers, you know, everyone has their like little greatest hits moments, but like left, right game is just one of those things that comes out of nowhere and does all of the right things that makes a good story. So if you were to pick one aspect of this, the, the story in its entirety, whether it be content or, or style, pick one little thing and the road. say what was the best thing about it. The road. You like the road? I love the idea of the road. I've always been someone who likes driving. I used to commute long distances. There is something both mentally and physically exciting and equally exhausting about sitting in a car for a very long time trying to get somewhere new, Mm. both metaphorically and physically in your life. And a lot can happen in that little space. For some, their cars are their houses. For some, the road is an escape. For some, the road is a ventilation process, you know. For some, the road leads to new chapters in their lives. And I just always think of, you know, almost mockingly, I've made the the paragraphs that describe every part of the left-right game on, like, iTunes, SoundCloud, and MixCloud. Like, every paragraph begins with like a road song that i'm like singing in all caps as i'm writing it and like on the road again just can't wait to get on the road and like the last one was uh moving right along in search of good times and good news with good friends you can't lose this could become a habit I fucking love Muppets. So, like, this one is... Country road, take me home to the place I belong. (laughs) Oh, it's perfect. So, you know, if there's one aspect that I'm going to remember and wish can be... I could just wish other stories can take a benefit off of. It's how this story romanticizes... The idea of a road. Yeah. I can appreciate that. I like that answer. I've always thought about it. It's my one thing that... Um, I think the game is a gimmick. I think what makes the story is the road. Okay. Um, gimmicks are very useful. Gimmicks tell good stories. Um, gimmicks have been some of the funniest foundations to some of the best things we've read on the show. Mm. That being said, you know, the meat of a story is still the meat of a story and the, and the bones of this one were the road Mm -hmm. at the base of every good chapter was something interesting that happened on the road. What about you? Trying to pick one thing about this whole, whole journey. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be technical or I logical, I always appreciate, you know me, the the struggle between mortality and that idea of of immortality. But existentialism, I yeah, I appreciated the existential aspect, the nihilist aspect that the story offered, at least a little bit of. And diving into infinity. Infinity is a very, very interesting concept. It's, it's, you can't know what infinity is, no. truly, in no. the sense of the word. But you have, can have ideas of it. But 
it really does a, a nice job at tackling the idea of infinity and really, you know, it's, 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 it's a scary thing in itself. How daunting and vast and... It's the one reason I've, I've always felt bad for vampires. Oh my gosh. In, yeah. In, in fiction. You... If you... So let me ask you this question. It's an interesting question to ask on, on a show like this. If offered immortality, do you take it? At any cost. Here's why I wouldn't. In this universe. Sure. The universe... This is going into some real theoretical physics right now. And also just deep emotional shit, however you feel about it. Well, I... Okay, so I'll first I'll answer this real quick. The universe is expanding, and it's expanding at rates that don't really agree with natural laws of physics as we've seen, as we've... You know, ever understood. Yeah. So with this, this ever-increasing expansion happening between literally atoms, it means essentially that particles will expand and matter won't be how we think of it in billions, billions of years. Mm-hmm. So I don't understand how immortality you existing as you are supposed to continue through be that physically able to happen continue yeah. and even yeah. you know even my even a thought or mind or soul i mean i don't know if uh yeah it just i wouldn't take immortality and that's mostly because i i would be too afraid of existing in a time where that's happening where it just you know so but uh but, like, that idea of, like, you know, not having any of your friends or family, your loved ones around, and things constantly dying. Oh, no, born. we always, we always, we as humans are accompanied by loss throughout our lives. It's not loss that stops me from from not choosing uh, immortality. What's it? It's my own brain that stops me from choosing immortality. I don't want to be alone with my thoughts forever. I actually one day hope for all of my thought to stop <laughs> so that I may have eternal peace. <laughs> I think, like, to be conscious is to be developed in chaos. Mm-hmm. To live chaos, to be drenched in chaos. And I think when I am asleep, I am my happiest. <laughs> that's why, to be honest with you, that's why I constantly play video games. It's a body, it's an out-of-body experience. Totally. That t- t- takes you out of yourself. That's why I've always loved movies, folks. That's why I've always loved stories. Stories is a big thing. How, stories is a big thing. I like how the beginning of this episode, you're like, I'm not much of a reader. And we just read 300-some pages over the course of, like, 12, <laughs> a- 12 hours together. I still wouldn't consider Each of these episodes was, like, three hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's like 15 hours of reading with a friend on a couch. I'm, ter- I'm terrible. I, I, I have a few books started and fuck. I Very few finished. Very few. <laughs> I devour good literature. Oh, I, I really suck. do. I sound like I read a lot. <laughs> That's all that matters. <laughs> Just be a poser. Be a poser till the day you die. Yeah. So, so re- tips, classes. Recently, I read a really interesting book 
Written by an up and coming. Just say Bukowski. <laughs> Just say Bukowski. It was uh, Robert Bukowski. Yeah. <laughs> you did that on purpose, it's right? It's, it's Charles Bukowski. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were either going to go Hemingway or Bukowski. I was only going to let you choose one of the two um, if you were going to begin your sentence like that. Um, tips glasses. Uh, so Hemingway. <laughs> anyway. Um, you know who I think would really enjoy this story that I think you also enjoyed spending a little bit of time with? Uh, Tom Bongbadil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think he would eat this story up on several levels. And I think he would probably find um, the character interactions as the most interesting very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, followed up by the uh, uh, almost the unequivocal dismembering of both like time and space as the ending of the story. <laughs> oh, but we uh, we have been through a lot tonight. What happens to the fucking gas in the car? <laughs> <laughs> what? Ha- oh, man. What are, what are the fucking car running on thoughts and prayers now? <laughs> You know what I wanted? You know, you know what I wanted to happen? I wanted a hot sex scene. I wanted the ending to literally just cut away to the ghost of Marjorie finding the concaved, crushed in face of Bobby just walking along the road uh-huh. and trying to have a conversation with him. Can you So wow, like, you know what? So like I finally found you after all. So- God, you're just ignoring me. <laughs> Why do you always ignore me? I can't believe. And Rob then she decides to go him. stand outside a mirror store for the rest of eternity and yell at people. <laughs> you're not supposed to be here. <laughs> Where's my Bobby? <laughs> I can't believe Rob killed him. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, we didn't really quite delve into a lot of this, a lot of the nitty gritty. Um, and I don't know if I want to now. <laughs> so wait a minute, yeah. Anybody he, you think, well, so he killed him because he knew he was going to try to destroy the thing. My God, if anybody he brought on the road even expressed the same feelings as his son, he'd have killed him lickety-split. You know Rob what? Rob Guthard, you're bringing us on this, this rabbit hole. I'm going back. That tunnel... Coming down, I'm contacting the authorities. You know, you just made me think. Maybe my whole contradiction with this story is misplaced. There is a lot we don't have explanation for. Okay, what else? Let me pose this by you. Do we have enough evidence that the hitchhiker in part one might be the narrator to this entire story? I get the fuck out. I'm feeling sick to my goddamn stomach. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of Left Right Game Part 5. I'm going under my blanket. <laughs> Here with Tenron Otrin. We had a great time reading this story. Um, let's do something not... 12 to 15 hours long next time. Let's do Let's short do, stories. You want to do a short story next episode? Let's do You a hated the last time we did short stories. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> yeah, let's just do something a little bit. Let's do something scary. <laughs> I want to get I want to get jump scared while this reading. Is lots of pasta after all. I want to be frightened. <laughs>
I want to get the fright. I'm sick of thinking about shit. <laughs> Just fucking end me. Show me a demon mouth fucking some dead body. Yeah. I'll find that for the next episode of Lots of Pasta. <laughs> Weed, you wouldn't believe, and I get more ass.